Aloha, by God's grace and mercy, we're here today to look into the Word of God to see what the Scriptures have to say about a topic that many of our listeners want to know more about. And mm -hmm. the topic to which I'm referring is what is known as critical race theory, or CRT yep. for short. Now, critical race theory is a subject that has been on the minds of many professing Christians for quite some time now, and for various reasons, right? Not the least of which is that CRT, in one form or another, has, has begun to rear its ugly head in the churches that, that they attend, in the schools in which their children are enrolled, and in the workplaces of believers who are being required by their employers to undergo CRT-influenced, quote, cultural diversity training, unquote, or else risk losing their jobs. I mean, Coca-Cola, did you, did you see what Coca-Cola is doing? Did you, have you seen that? Coca-Cola, it's, it's been video of this has been uh, uh, shared on social media where Coca-Cola is, uh, I think they're leveraging the uh, uh, book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo to uh, uh, encourage their employees to be less white. Oh my gosh. To be less white. The Coca-Cola company. Th this, is, this is all over social media. So that's an example of uh, where we have believers who are employed by certain companies like Coca-Cola, and, and they're being mandated. They're being required to undergo cultural diversity training or risk losing their jobs. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will recall, Omaha, that you and I have mentioned the term critical race theory on various episodes of the Just Thinking podcast. However, until now, until this episode, we hadn't really dedicated an entire episode to this subject. In fact, over the past several weeks, as you know, several of our listeners have reached out to us requesting that we address this topic. But before we begin to dive into this vast topic of critical race theory, is there anything you'd like to add to what I've said uh, to this point, Omaha? Yeah, briefly, man, I'll, I'll just say just by way of, of intro, critical race theory is everywhere. And it, and it currently it permeates every aspect of culture. I mean, you mentioned the Coca-Cola company and, and what they're doing. Sadly, uh, a subject, better yet a theory, that was once reserved for academia has forced its way onto, into popular culture. Everywhere we look, from small companies to large corporations, uh, from science to sports, from education to entertainment, we're witnessing the breakneck pace of culturally accepted racism, currently spelled wow. C-R-T, right? Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Ho, 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 ho. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Already. Already you bringing that heat. Come on, man. Re Go ahead, and, and I need you to replay that redefinition of CRT, bro. That was so Absolutely. nice to say it twice, man. Every, every, everywhere we look, from small companies to large corporations, from science to sports, from education to entertainment, we are witnessing the breakneck speed of culturally accepted racism, currently spelled C-R-T. Wow. Uh, again, CRT was once a, a theoretical idea bantered about by academicians uh, interested in adjudicating specific outcomes. And I know we're going to get to this in greater detail in our episode, but here, here's what I mean. A, a, a case simply goes to court. And as the result, the, uh, the result isn't in, in, in one person's favor. But what do you do? Well, you sprinkle a bit of critical theory on the matter and voila, you get your preferred outcome. Now, all of this in the name of 400 years of oppression, the likes of which no one living has, has actually firsthand knowledge of experiencing. Uh, the level of victimology and white guilt necessary to sustain such tomfoolery grows moment 
by moment. Furthermore, within evangelicalism, many pastors like Aaron in the Old Testament have stripped parishioners of their gold, placed it into the fire, and are now worshiping the golden calf of CRT. And we've got we've got we've got a lengthy show, man. And so I, I know we're going to get a lot of stuff in during this show, man. So I, I can't wait for us to get it in the, the way we do it. I'm excited, too, bro. I am so excited, man, to go through this topic with you, man. We, we've been waiting for weeks. We've been prepping for yeah. weeks, working hard behind the scenes, researching and getting ready for this episode, man. So I'm excited with you, bro. You know, uh, Omaha, the, the 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 term critical race theory, as you said, is ubiquitous. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems that everywhere you turn. You encounter either the term itself or some mm-hmm. aspect or element of what that term purportedly represents. But what exactly does critical race theory represent? Right. That's the question that seemingly is on the minds of many professing evangelicals today. What does critical race theory represent? Now, as I mentioned earlier, Omaha, the topic of critical race theory is vast and far reaching, not to mention multifaceted and oftentimes very complex, but as familiar as some, uh, perhaps many of our listeners may be with the term critical race theory, they may be less familiar with what CRT actually entails and encompasses as a philosophy or as an ideology. And, And though one of our primary objectives for this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast is to familiarize our listeners with what critical race theory is, I believe the fundamental reason why you and I are motivated to broach this topic today is reflected in the following words from the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Mm. Dr. Boyce, in a message titled Justification by Faith Alone, provided this rather sobering assessment of the state of the evangelical church. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce said this, quote, the evangelical church is in bad trouble today. And part of the problem is that we don't even know it. We've abandoned our theology. We're substituting other things for the word of God. And we don't even know it's what we're doing. The evangelical church has lost its soul. And it has lost its soul because it has lost its theology. Mm. Unquote. That was Dr. James Montgomery Boyce from a message titled Justification by Faith. Dr. Boyce said the evangelical church has lost its soul and it has lost its soul because it has lost its theology. Now, along those same lines of thought as Dr. James Boyce, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, in a blog article he wrote for Ligonier Ministries titled The Perils Facing the Evangelical Church, said this, quote, Among what I see as the three most critical perils the church faces today are, first of all, the loss of biblical truth. When the truth of the gospel is compromised or negotiated, the church ceases to be evangelical. We live in a time of crisis with respect to truth, where many churches see doctrine merely as something that divides. Therefore, they stress relationships over truth. That is a false distinction. As a commitment to truth is a commitment that should manifest itself in vital living relationships. Relationships can never be a substitute for embracing the truth of God. So the either or fallacy of doctrine or relationship cannot be maintained under careful biblical scrutiny, unquote. That was the late Dr. R.C. Sproul in a blog article titled The Perils Facing the Evangelical Church. Now, Critical race theory is one of those things, 
as Dr. James Montgomery Boyce put it, that the evangelical church is, quote, substituting for the word of God, unquote, so that, as Dr. R.C. Sproul said, quote, the gospel is now being compromised and negotiated, unquote. That, my listening friends, is ultimately the reason why we're doing this episode of the Just Thinking podcast on critical race theory, because CRT compromises the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, Omaha, it was the beloved Welsh preacher and theologian, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who in a sermon titled Obedience to the Truth said this, quote, it is the business of the gospel to call men to obey the truth, unquote. Amen. Amen. It is the business of the gospel to call men to obey the truth. Conversely, Pastor John MacArthur, in his book titled Ashamed of the Gospel, subtitled When the Church Becomes Like the World, said this, quote, Preaching the word must be the very heart of our ministry philosophy. Any other philosophy replaces the voice of God with human wisdom. The preacher's task is not to be a conduit for human wisdom. He is God's voice to speak to the congregation. No human message comes with the stamp of divine authority. Did you hear that, listeners? No human message comes with the stamp of divine authority. Only the word of God does. I frankly do not understand preachers who are willing to abdicate this solemn privilege. Moral lectures and motivational talks are, are no substitute for God's word. Why should we proclaim the wisdom of men when we have the privilege of preaching the word of God? Unquote. Come on, man. Come on. I was, John MacArthur said that in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, When the Church Becomes Like the World. Now, mm-hmm. My purpose in quoting both D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and John MacArthur is that the evangelical church, especially in America, is quickly losing sight of the business that God has called it to be engaged in. Critical race theory. Critical race theory is only the latest man-centered philosophy to come against the church that the church is allowing itself to be sucked in by. It was the same with the so-called social gospel in the earlier 20th century and still today in the 21st century. But being sucked in is precisely what happens when you lose sight of what fundamentally is, quote, the business of the gospel, unquote, as Lloyd-Jones said, as you suddenly find yourself drifting off into the business of trying to be everything to everybody. Now, a rather troubling case in point of that, okay, an example of that, is in a white paper that was originally published in 2014 in the Master Seminary Journal titled, Regaining Our Focus, subtitled, a response to the social action trend in evangelical missions. Okay. Regaining our focus, a response to the social action trend in evangelical missions. In that paper, Dr. Joel James and Dr. Brian Biedebach state the following quote, it appears that many Christians in the social justice movement have avidly adopted the piety of postmodernism. The result is that in a subtle way, the world begins to set the agenda for the church. For example, we recently read a church planting plan for a major African city in which the author, a thoroughgoing evangelical, laid out his primary goals. At the same level of importance as preaching and evangelism, the following were included. To help the city change for the better socially to increase the overall level of civility among its citizens, to encourage better race relations in the city, and to actively advantage the disadvantaged. 
the author made it clear, the author of that church planning plan made it clear that if the constituency of the church did not come from racially and economically diverse backgrounds, he would consider the church plant a failure. While all those things are good to one degree or another, we would contend that on the whole, they are not New Testament identified goals for a church. In fact, they appear primarily to be a rehashing of the agendas of politically correct postmodern culture, of a, of a politically correct postmodern culture. And when the world sets the agenda, listen to this, and when the world sets the agenda, it is no surprise that the gospel expository preaching and serious theological training sometimes slip into second place. Mm. That was Dr. Joel James and Dr. Brian Biedebach from a white paper published back in 2014 titled regaining our focus, a response to the social action trend and evangelical missions. Now those comments from Dr. James, Dr. Joel James and Dr. Brian Biedebach, Bring to my mind these words from the 19th century English theologian J.C. Ryle, who in his excellent book titled Practical Religion said simply yet profoundly, J.C. Ryle said this, quote, the things of the soul come first and the things of the world come second, unquote. <laughs> that was J.C. Ryle from his book Practical Religion, which if you have not read it, I highly commend it to you. Yeah. Ryle said the things of the soul come first. And the things of the world come second. And, you know, Omaha, as I reflect on those words from J.C. Ryle, as well as on the comments from Drs. James and Biedebach, I cannot help but be convicted and convinced that the evangelical church in America today, in its pragmatic and misplaced zeal to embrace the paganistic philosophy that is critical race theory, has completely inverted that order of which J.C. Ryle spoke and made the things of the world primary and yes. the things of the soul secondary. Yes, 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 absolutely. Man, absolutely. Man, first of all, man, the, the, the whole, your whole presentation was tight. I'm, I'm going to encourage our listeners to make, take copious notes. This particular episode is jam packed full with references and citations and quotes and we, we we often get asked and this, this is not even in my notes i'm just uh, i just need to i just need do, to do early thing, man. It, hey, yeah, hey do your thing omaha it's our show yeah early 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 in this episode i w i just want to encourage you if you've listened to just thinking you know how this goes down i'm going to encourage you to grab your pen grab some paper you're going to need to make a lot of notes you're going to need to make references to some of these books you and i Daryl get asked all the time hey what what books should i be reading or what how can i how can i locate this information that information i keep telling people they've got to go back to our episodes they've yep. got to go back to the episodes because it's all there it's episode, all there it's all it's all all the work is there so you definitely need to go back and this is definitely one of those one of those particular episodes however let me get to my notes when you hear the words of men like Boyce and Sproul and Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur and Ryle, you begin to understand what the, writers, what the writer of Ecclesiastes meant when he said, what has been will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes yep. 1, 9. None of what we see with CRT is new. How, how often, Daryl, have we made the argument that CRT promotes an unbiblical anthropology or view of man, 
an unbiblical harmardiology or view of sin, an unbiblical soteriology or view of salvation, and an unbiblical eschatology or view of end times. If if we said if we said that once, brother, we said that a dozen times yep. so that people can be clear. So so let me be clear in the statement that I'm about to make. <clears throat> let me clear my throat. CRT is a new religion preaching a false gospel and its adherents seek to remove God as king. They desire to remove his word as sufficient and they desire to remove his gospel as the power of God unto salvation. Man, ho, 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 hold it. Cue the Hammond on that one because I'm going to have to <laughs> rewind that. Rewind that, bro. I need you to. I need, bro. That was so nice. You're gonna have to say it twice, man. We, we've got. We. I want us to be. I, I, I. And I know we're gonna do that. This is. This is how we get down. I. I want to be clear about where we stand on this issue. I want to be clear about about what Scripture says about this issue. We're always bringing Scripture and the Word of God into conflict with culture. And this. And this episode is no different. But l- let me be clear. CRT is a new religion, and it is preaching a false gospel. Its adherents seek to remove God as king, to remove his word as sufficient, and to remove his gospel as the power of God unto salvation. I don't care what anyone tells you, that is absolutely the intention of those who are advocating for CRT. The, The Apostle Paul would write the following to believers in Rome. He'd say this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented so so that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. And, 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 and what I'm quoting from here is Romans chapter one, right? Verses mm-hmm. uh, uh, 12, 12 and, and, and following. He says, I'm eager to preach to, to you the gospel in, in, uh, who are those of you who are also in Rome. Verse 16 says this, for I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, now, when Paul spoke of his desire to preach the gospel, intersectionality was not in view. Paul, Paul was not looking for the most economically oppressed among us, as Tim Keller suggested on Twitter two days ago. Man, come right? on, bro. Come on, bro. Right. The Apostle Paul was under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, two different people groups. And to emphasize the point, Paul would go on to write to what to wise and to foolish. Now, now, why did he make those those distinctions? He did so because he wanted to make clear that regardless of one's station in life, both groups of people are in need of the same thing, which is salvation, salvation. As a result, both groups require the message of the gospel to be preached to them. I I could go on here, but let me unpack something in reference to the quote that you made, Daryl, earlier when when you quoted from uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who in in his message entitled Justification by Faith Alone, you said it. He said the following uh, regarding the state of the evangelical church. I'm just going to reread your quote. It was this. Mm -hmm. The evangelical church is in bad trouble today. And part of the problem is that we don't even know it. We've abandoned our theology. We're substituting other things for the word of God, and we don't even know it's what we're doing. The evangelical church has lost its soul, and it has lost its soul because it has lost its theology. 
This is an incredibly important statement. While many of our listeners may be familiar with Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, others may not be. So for those who are far less familiar with his work, Dr. Boyce was born in 1938. He was a successful inner city pastor in Philadelphia's historic 10th Presbyterian Church. He was a pastor there from 1968 to 2000, and he was a well-known Bible teacher, author, and speaker. However, he was best known for his work in the area of biblical inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And as Boyce, Sproul, and MacArthur began to witness during their day the liberal drift that was happening in in evangelicalism, they witnessed this in the early and mid-70s. They would come together in Chicago in October Mm -hmm. of 1978. They, They would pen a significant statement on the issue of biblical inerrancy that would become known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Later, recognizing their work was unfinished in November of 1982, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics would follow. And then finally, in December of of 1986, the conference adopted the Chicago Statement on Biblical Application. Now, the leftist liberal agenda is always the same. Here's what they aim to do. They aim to minimize biblical sufficiency by attacking biblical application. Next, they minimize biblical sufficiency by attacking biblical hermeneutics. And finally, they minimize biblical sufficiency by attacking biblical inerrancy or validity. And and CRT is simply the latest installment on an attack of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, men like Boyce and Sproul and MacArthur understood this in their day, and it is critically important that we be clear about it in ours. Now, let me say this finally. When speaking on scripture sufficiency, it was Dr. John MacArthur who said this, quote, even though the Bible is an ancient document, every person in every situation in every society that has ever existed can find in this book things that endure forever. Here's a book that never needs another edition. It never needs to be edited. It never has to be updated. It's never out of date or obsolete. It speaks to us as pointedly and directly as it ever has to anyone in any century since it was written, end quote. Now, CRT advocates attempt to use scripture to invalidate scriptural sufficiency. For for example, Daryl, I, I know you remember the Twitter dust up that I was involved in where Charlie yes. Dates, Charlie Dates, yeah, he, he, he kind of he came at me a little bit. You remember that? Yes, and that was quite recent, actually. That was quite recent. He likened me to a Pharaoh-loving Jew, a slave-loving slave, and finally, Uncle Ruckus. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're unfamiliar with who Uncle Ruckus is, I wouldn't even encourage you to go look it up. It, it, is, it is absolutely uh, a, a pejorative. He, he's intending to, to, to call me an Uncle Tom in even worse ways, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what drew his outrage, what drew his, the outrageous comments of dates was that I cited, that I, I stated rather, that CRT Light was false and that scripture was sufficient. When I did this, everyone from Dwight McKissick to Anthony Bradley jumped to defend Charlie Dates while challenging my understanding of scriptural sufficiency. Why did my comment draw so much attention? Well, it's because those who advocate for CRT, they understand one thing, that the battleground of their attack rises and falls on whether or not we believe the Bible is sufficient. Man, come on, verse. Come on, bro. Advocate scripture is sufficient. 
and you too will witness the venom of their attacks. At wh where where we currently are on this issue of CRT, that, that that's evidence. That 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 what, what what we're seeing with the regard to the issue of CRT is absolutely an attack on biblical sufficiency. Bro, that was straight. Verse, that was straight fire, man. I have to say, come this, on, man. man. Let, let, let me go off. Let me go off script here for a second. What happened to you in that Charlie Day situation and those who piled on these other black brothers who piled on? See, yep. that's a primary example of the elephant that's in the room that no one wants to talk about. It's just interesting. Right. That we're talking about this in our CRT episode, because what happened to you in these other black uh, so-called brothers piling on? That's mm -hmm. a prime example of what I call the intra intra ethnic racism that nobody right. wants to talk about. Right. So nobody right. wants to talk about that. This is this this intra ethnic racism, and I hate that word racism, but I'll use it just for sake of conversation. Intra ethnic racism, that is black on black racism, brown on brown racism, is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. It is a it is a it is a bigotry. It is a prejudice. It is a sinful bias that is primarily ideological. So you Absolutely. can you you dare not even when it comes down to the advocating for the sufficiency of scripture as you did even when mm -hmm. it comes down to that if you don't concur with the tribe if you don't concur with the with the ethnic collective on that mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. too will be ostracized you too Absolutely. will be labeled a pejorative you too will be uh, 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 accused of not being authentically black. Right. And that's right. exactly what happened to you. And see, what our listeners need to understand, I'm not saying this trying to endear pity from anyone. Oh, no, this, absolutely not. This, this happens to us all the time. All the time. Right, right. This, this, happen, this, is, this happens to us all the time. And I've said many times to, to people we've met in person as, as we've been speaking in different cities at different churches or, or whatever the case may be. Listen, no white person has ever called me a coon. Mm -mm. No white person has ever called me a house nigger. No white mm -mm. person has ever tried to label me an Uncle Tom, which if they if they actually read Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, they would never call us an Uncle Tom because we, you, <laughs> you, you realize you realize Uncle Tom was the hero of that book, of right. that story. Right. But this happens to us all the time. The flack that we catch. Now, you got some white woke wannabe liberals out there or, or white liberal believers who want to be woke. And those of, are some of the those are some of the racist individuals I come into contact. They, with. they are the they are the worst. They mm -hmm. are the worst. So because what they're doing, they're reading people like Dates and McKissick and others. And they're reading these academicians that you alluded to earlier who are mm -hmm. writing uh, all these books and references on critical race theory. And they're jotting down these little talking points. And then they're using social media to post their little what I call their little hit and run comments. Thinking mm -hmm. that they're piling on, trying to tell, trying to tell you and I something, as if we, <laughs> as if, as if, they, if, if, as if there's something with regard to uh, uh, material poverty or economic poverty that you and I both grew up with that we don't know about, right. that we don't know about inequality, we don't know about inequity. So they're trying to teach us something. I mean, it's laughable. It is. But it is. Here's, here's. Go ahead, bro. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, go ahead. I, I was. I was just gonna say, man, real quick. This happens to you and I. All the time, you and me, all the time. This is a yeah. regular occurrence. So th this is why I so often have to uh, remind folks of what my three-word motto is. <laughs> my my three-word motto is I don't care. 
Right. I do not care what you think about me. Right. Will you will, right. will you please get that through your head? I do not care. I don't care. So so go ahead and, and save your little uh, uh, keyboard warrior ammunition for somebody else because right. it it doesn't phase me. It's like I tell people, bro, bro. I've been I've been robbed at gunpoint twice. Do you mean to tell me that you actually think something you can say to me on social media is gonna uh, 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 you know bother me? No. Absolutely not. That that's one of the, one of the reasons. One of the things. I mean, I I bring up the story, not for the purpose of of, in, of endearing folks to you know. Oh, poor me, because th- you know there were a lot of folks again who reached out and kindness and care and compassion. But to the point you just made, bro, this is every. I mean, this is we we. I've dealt with this so long. It's not even. Uh, we we when we were in Fort Myer, we talked about this issue, and one of the statements, one of the comments I I said was, I would say this is like water on a duck's back. But but I but I would have to then characterize what was done as as something valuable like water. I mean, it was so pointless. <laughs> right. it, it was it was so pointless, so meaningless and, and had nothing. It, this had nothing to do with me. It did two things. It did two things. One, it showed their disdain for scriptural sufficiency. And number two, it showed their ethnic hatred and pride. Oh man, yes. That see, that's that's what I'm referring to when I talk about mm-hmm. intra-ethnic racism. It's exactly that. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that. They they are hateful. They are mm-hmm. prideful of people who look like them, yep. who've been created in, in who who like them have been created in the image of God. However, because we don't tow the tribalistic, ideological, monolithic way of thinking, mm-hmm. they got to come out and blast you. On social, yep. oh, absolutely. You know, I, you know, I, I, I was thinking, man, it's not water off a dust back. You're right. I kind of look at it as like hot butter on a stack of pancakes. That's how <laughs> I kind of look at it. They trying to throw hot butter on a stack of pancakes, but all I do is add syrup, bro, and we go to town. We, 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 we good. We good. You know, absolutely. You know, Omaha. You know, it's often been said of critical race theory that it's quote infiltrating unquote the, the evangelical church. People say, well, critical race theory is infiltrating the evangelical church. You know, I, for one, though, I beg to differ with that assertion. Now, I say that because in order for the evangelical church to have been, quote, infiltrated, unquote, by CRT or any other man concocted philosophy or ideology, for that matter, to Mm -hmm. say that it's been infiltrated is by definition to imply or to infer that CRT is somehow surreptitiously or autonomously or clandestinely making inroads into the church despite the church's best efforts to keep it out. Right. That's what that's what infiltration looks like. Mm-hmm. That is is, is surrep- surreptitiously sneaking in despite the church's best efforts to keep it out. But see, keeping CRT out of the church is not what's happening to an increasingly great extent. What we're w- witnessing today, what we're seeing today within evangelicalism, again, particularly in America. It's not the infiltration of critical race theory into the church, but the outright embracing of it. Mm. You see, you see, Omaha, it's one thing for a worldly philosophy such as CRT to infiltrate the church. That's one thing. Right. But when you willingly open your doors and pulpits to that philosophy, you can Mm -hmm. no longer say it's infiltration. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. At that point, when you open the doors and you open your pulpits, at that point, you set out the proverbial welcome mat and invited that philosophy to pull up a seat and order an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. 
no, 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 my friend. That's not infiltration. Right. That's that's not infiltration. That's accommodation. Absolutely. Absolutely. What you got, man? And well, the accommodation that you that you mentioned uh, that that we that we see and witness has become ever more present through the growing pragmatism of of church culture. Mm-hmm. You know, the church no longer focuses on feeding the sheep. The church focused the church rather focused on numbers became about entertaining the goats. Oh, whoa, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it. That's what that's Bro. what they're doing. That's bro, what they're kick, doing, man. Kick, kick that again, verse. You got to repeat <laughs> that, bro. That was so we, good. We, 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 uh, we, we. What I'm seeing, and I know you're seeing this. I know we're all seeing this. We're seeing this accommodation that it becomes ever more apparent through the growing pragmatism of church culture. Churches no longer focus on feeding sheep. The church focused on numbers became about entertaining the goats. Mm, the mm, church's mm. motivation became attracting lost people through introductory songs to top non-Christian recording artists, right? You've seen this man going on in churches. Yep. Like the intro song to the church when they come in as a track that, that they're playing or, or maybe a group of singers get up and do. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a song based upon, you know, the top non-Christian recording artists, you know, top of the chart song. They, they kind of right. intro it that way. Right. Right. The, 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 the normative principle has given way to the abnormative principle mm, where, man, where the, where the, where the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. That's the approach that the church has actually taken for white evangelicals. That meant putting one finger in the air to learn which way the wind of change mm-hmm. was blowing mm-hmm. and then setting their direction accordingly. Mm-hmm. Now for black evangelicals, Buried under an abundance of the sermons promoting a narrative of suffering, it was a matter of time before victimology and a media-driven narrative would hold them captive, requiring their rescue. Now, these these issues, man, led to the doors being kicked down by CRT long before it became apparent to many. The church, the church had to was actually ripe for the kind of mess that we're seeing right now on a day-to-day basis with regard to CRT. Man, that's a great verse. You know, uh, so so with all that as background, right? So with all that at background, all that we've said to this point as background, let's delve into this topic of critical race theory or CRT by starting at the beginning mm-hmm. and considering this question. Okay, we're going to consider this question: What exactly is critical race theory anyway? What is critical race theory? Now, I'll get to that question in a moment, but first, we need to exegete the term critical race theory somewhat Mm -hmm. and look at its predecessor term first, which is critical theory. Okay. Because there's an important contextual aspect to the word critical that we need to understand before moving forward with answering the question, what is critical race theory? So we need to exegete some terms because that's what we do on the just thinking podcast. That's That's how we get down. Mm -hmm. Now, according to the Oxford dictionary of critical theory, The term critical theory was coined by a German philosopher and social scientist by the name of Max Horkheimer. Now, if you're taking notes, that name is spelled M-A-X. Last name is Horkheimer, H-O-R-K-H-E-I-M-E-R. The term critical theory was coined by a German philosopher and social scientist by the name of Max Horkheimer in 1937 
to describe the work of the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School, known more, known more accurately as critical theory, is a philosophical and sociological movement spread across many universities around the world. It was originally located at the Institute for Social Research. The Institute for Social Research was an attached institute at the Geth University. That's G-O-E-T-H-E, the Geth University in Frankfurt, Germany. Now, the mm -hmm. Institute for Social Research was founded in 1923 thanks to a donation by a man named Felix Weil, a Jewish-German-Argentine Marxist, with the aim of developing Marxist studies in Germany. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, the Institute that Felix Weil founded in the, in, uh, in, uh, in the, in the, uh, in 1923, in the 1960s, by the 1960s, it had been uh, commonly referred to as Karl Marx university. Wow. Okay. If that, if that tells you anything. Okay. Wow. So the, the Institute for social research was founded in 1923 by a name, a man named Felix Weil. Weil was a Jewish German Argentine Marxist. His goal was to develop Marxist studies in Germany. But after 1933, when the Nazis came to power, the Nazis forced the closure of the Institute and the Institute or the Frankfurt School or Critical Theory, you will be correct to refer to it by either of those names, was moved to the United States where it found hospitality at Columbia University in New York. It is still there to this day. The mm. Institute for Social Research now based out of Columbia University in New York City. Now, in the book titled Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory, Patricia Hill Collins, Distinguished University Professor Emerita of Sociology at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland, provides some additional commentary on the Frankfurt School and the origins of critical theory. Ms. Collins writes this, again, this is in her book titled Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory, quote, for many philosophers and social theorists in Europe and North America, the critical theory of the Frankfurt School serves as a starting point for a genealogy of Western critical social theory. Most histories of critical social theory place its origins in the critical theory that was advanced in the 1930s by a group of philosophers, sociologists, social psychologists, and cultural critics who were affiliated with the Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. Collectively known as the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Eric Fromm, Herbert Marcuse, Walter Benjamin, and other intellectuals at the Institute drew upon continental European philosophy to develop a critical posture toward established social theory, unquote. Now, I know that was a lot, but again, as Virgil uh, uh, said earlier, you'll just have to go back through this episode and capture that again. But I was just quoting Patricia Hill Collins from her book, Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Now, by the way, the phrase continental European philosophy that Patricia Hill Collins used in the quote that I just read from her, that phrase continental European philosophy is merely code for Marxism. OK, bottom line, that's that's just a fancy way of, of calling it Marxism. That's precisely what that term means. Continental European philosophy. That's Marxism. Now, that said, mm -hmm. Omaha, I want to take a moment here to bring to the attention of our listeners something that Patricia Hill Collins failed to mention. Mm -hmm. 
in that quote from her that I just read, which is that Horkheimer, Adorno, Fromm, Marcuse, and Benjamin, all individuals who she named in the quote that I just read from her, from her, all those individuals, Horkheimer, Adorno, Fromm, Marcuse, and Benjamin, all were heavily influenced by the teachings of Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Now, she didn't say that in her quote, but I just want our listeners to know that. All right. Though the jury is still out on the theology of Hegel. Some say he was an atheist, while others argue that he was not. Both Marx and Freud unarguably were atheists and were each greatly influenced by the atheism and the anthropological materialism of another German Marxist by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach. Ludwig Feuerbach. That last name is F-E-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. Ludwig Feuerbach. In 1841, Feuerbach published a secular critique of the Christian religion titled The Essence of Christianity. In the preface to the second edition of that book, Feuerbach writes this, quote, In these works I have sketched with a few sharp touches the historical solution of Christianity. The, the historical solution of Christianity, he says, and have shown that Christianity has in fact long vanished, not only from the reason, but from the life of mankind that it is nothing more than a fixed idea in flagrant contradiction with our fire and life assurance companies, our railroads and steam carriages, our picture and sculpture galleries, our military and industrial schools, our theaters and scientific museums, unquote. So Ludwig Feuerbach considered Christianity, again, Feuerbach was a German Marxist, he considered Christianity to be nothing but a fixed idea that's on the same level, level as the invention of the railroad and the steam carriage. Now, it's important to keep in mind names like Marx, Freud, Hegel, and Feuerbach as we move forward in this discussion about critical race theory, because it was those individuals who played very significant roles in, forma in the formation of critical theory, the philosophy from which critical race theory is devised is derived rather. So it's important for us to understand critical race theory is the fruit of a predecessor philosophy known as critical theory. So that's why mm -hmm. I had to give you that background that I just went through. Now, to continue on with my previous train of thought, I want to pick back up in the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Theory, which says, and please listen closely to what I'm about to say, because I mentioned earlier, we need to exegete some terms here. Please listen mm -hmm. closely to this. This is very important. I am mm -hmm. quoting from the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Theory, quote, defined against the traditional conception of theory governing the sciences, including the social or human sciences, such as sociology, which holds that it is a system of abstract propositions which can be verified empirically. Critical theory holds the opposite view, namely, mm -hmm. namely, that theory is historical, subjective, and a part of society. Critical theory is, in this regard, a highly reflexive enterprise. Please, listeners, do not miss what I'm saying here. Matter of fact, I'm going to go back and start. This is huge to this conversation. Absolutely. It's huge, man. 
Again, defined against the traditional conception of theory governing the, the sciences, which holds that it is a system of abstract propositions which can be verified empirically, critical theory holds the opposite view, namely that theory is historical, subjective, and a part of society. Critical theory is in this regard a highly reflexive enterprise. It is never satisfied with what something means or how it works. It also has to ask what is at stake in asking such questions in the first place. Listen to this part. The word critical should thus be understood to mean the opposite of analytical. Hello, don't miss that. The word critical should thus be understood. I'm still quoting the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Theory. The word critical should thus be understood to mean the opposite of analytical. It refers to the set of concepts whose reach is always and of necessity greater than their grasp. Critical theory is interested in why human society, in its eyes, failed to live up to the promise of Marxist enlightenment and became what it is today, unre unequal, unjust, and largely uncaring, unquote. Wow, wow. That wow. was from the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Theory. And if you don't get anything else from this episode, understand this. This is why it was so critical for us to exegete this term. Please understand that in critical race theory, the word critical does not mean analytical. It, analytical. Does, it does not mean to ver verify objectively or empirically. It means the opposite of analytical. It means the opposite of it. Now, Having unpacked the meaning of the word critical in the term critical race theory, we likewise need to bring some much needed context to the term race with regard to the term critical race theory. And to provide that context, I want to quote from Dr. Thomas Sowell and his book, The Economics and Politics of Race, subtitled An International Perspective. Thomas Sowell's book, The Economics and Politics of Race, An International Perspective, where in chapter one of the book titled The Role of Race, Soul writes this, listen closely. Race has affected all kinds of human relationships for thousands of years and in all parts of the world. Strife between Africans and East Indians has erupted into varying levels of violence from Uganda to Guyana to Trinidad. The overseas Chinese have been victims of mob violence and brutal expulsions in countries from Southeast Asia to Mexico. Racial strife between blacks and whites as in the United States, is part of a worldwide pattern. These antagonisms have not been limited to groups that fall into different divisions of the human species, into the Caucasian, Negro, or Mongoloid races. The levels of group hostility and group violence within each of these divisions has at least equaled that among people who differed more visibly in skin color, hair texture, and other visible features. The most ghastly example of racial fanaticism in history was the Nazi extermination of millions of defenseless men, women, and children who were so similar to themselves in appearance that mm -hmm. insignia, tattoos, and documents had to be used to tell the victims from their murderers. Mm -hmm. The apartheid of South Africa was based on sharp differences of race and culture. But in a larger context of human history, degrees of biological or cultural differences have had little relationship to the degree of strife, repression, or violence. Did you hear that, listeners? 
Right. The apartheid right. of South Africa was based on sharp differences of race and culture, but in a larger text, a larger context of human history, degrees of biological or cultural repression or, vi- or I'm sorry, degrees of biological or cultural differences have had little relationship to the degree of strife, repression, or violence. Contemporary black and white Americans, for example, have lower levels of antagonism than exist in all black or all white nations, such as Burundi or Northern Ireland. The atrocities committed against the Chinese minorities in Southeast Asia, including the boat people whose traumas shocked the world, indicates that Asia, too, has not escaped the tragedies associated with racism, but the anomaly that much of it occurs among people who are biologically very similar. The history of Africa has likewise been full of depredations, subjugation, and massive enslavement among peoples who were all black, mm-hmm. but whose internal ethnic and tribal differences were as deadly in their effects as similar differences among Europeans. If race were conceived of purely in biological terms, it would be a concept that could be applied to only a relatively handful of people on a few small isolated islands in the oceans. Throughout Europe, Asia, and especially America, racial intermixtures over the centuries have left hybrid populations in every country. What are called, quote, races, unquote, in this context, are simply groups of people with substantially differing proportions of genes from varying racial stocks. In the United States, for example, more than three quarters of the black population have at least one white ancestor, while tens of millions of whites have at least one black ancestor. And it is not uncommon for either blacks or whites to have a Native American Indian ancestor. Discussions of race as a social phenomena are discussions of relationships between groups perceived as biologically different to a degree that is significant to those involved. Now, listen to this last sentence. It is more accurately ethnicity. It is more accurately ethnicity, but it is often thought of and discussed as race, unquote. So here you have Seoul, Omaha, mm-hmm. formally uh, uh, acknowledging what you and I have said countless times right, on the Justin right. podcast that the right. accurate term is ethnicity, not race. Right. The, it's, it's biblically accurate and it's societally accurate. The more accurate term is ethnicity, not race, as right. Seoul said. Discussions of race as a social phenomenon are discussions of relationships between groups of people that are biologically perceived as biologically different to a degree. But it is more accurate to use the term ethnicity, not race. Thoughts on that, bro? Man, this is this is a big section that's incredibly important. So my, my thoughts on this section of these, while the names are numerous in this section, this this section that we've that we've outlined. I, I want you to go back and, and, and mark it. I should serve as a starting point for more reading on critical theory history. This this critical theory lays the groundwork for the CRT framework. Uh, 
Now, Daryl, it's interesting to me, man, and and at least at, and at times unfortunate that you and I are often accused of not interacting with original or source material. Yes, isn't that crazy? It's is laughable. It's laughable. It's laughable. Once once that's proven to be inaccurate, the goalpost then moves to well, you haven't studied current current day source material, current day scholarship of, of critical race theory. And then once that's proven to be incorrect, the goalpost then proceeds to, well, you haven't talked to a modern critical theorist. You know, all this goalpost shifting, it's, uh-huh. merely an att- it's merely an attempt to shield critical theory and critical race theorists from any scrutiny. I mean, we talked about that. I and mean, that, 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 that was the first part of the section that you walked through, the fact mm-hmm. that, 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 that critical doesn't mean what you think it means. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's absolutely what they, what they don't mean. I find it rich that critical theorists and critical race theorists demand that their critiques of culture and society be accepted. Uh-huh. All at the same time, CT and CRT has a built-in mechanism that avoids any critique or analysis of its methods. Yep. Any attempt to criticize CT or CRT and you become a part of the problematic power structure requiring their destruction. Yep. What 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 I want to what I want to tell our listeners is this. Yes, it is essential to learn about the history of CT and CRT. I mean, we we we're spending we the, the number of hours that, that we put into not only each show, but in particular this show. This one uh, definitely. It's it, it's it's staggering. However, the ever moving target of must read books on the subject, as suggested by CRT advocates, these are mere attempts to avoid, diffuse, and redirect the problems inherent within CRT. So, so my my encouragement to you as a listener is: don't fall for it. Just don't fall for it. Yep. What you'll what you'll frequently hear from CRT advocates is that you haven't done your homework, or mm-hmm. you need to go and do the work. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a, an attempt to diminish your voice by questioning your understanding. So here in, in this section, there are two important key issues that I want to bring up for consideration. And so here, here's what they are. First was the issue that you raised in the with the previous quote from the Oxford Dictionary. And I thought it was incredibly spot on and it bears repeating again. So I want to repeat it here. You said this quote, the word critical should thus be understood to mean the opposite of analytical. Yep. It re- it refers to a set of concepts whose reach is always and of necessity greater than their grasp. Critical theory is interested in why human society in its eyes failed to live up to the promise of of enlightenment, right? A Marx Marxist enlightenment that became what it is today, unequal, unjust, and largely uncaring. Now, I, I highlighted this point in my earlier comments when I said this, critical theory uh, can be critical of, of the worldview of others. However, it can never be analyzed or critiqued. So that's, that's point one from this particular section that we definitely want you to hold on to. The second point goes back to the, your original comments in, in this section that critical theory's origin begins with the godless ideology of men whose worldview was antithetical to anything biblical or Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that needs to be emphasized yes. because what we're, what we're enduring by evangelicals, evangelical leadership is this idea that, that these are wonderful analytical tools to be used for the purpose of, of determining what's happening in culture. 
And, and what they're asking us to do is to embrace godless ideologies mm-hmm. of, of, of men whose worldview is antithetical to anything biblical or Christian. To this, I'll add what scripture says about bad trees bearing bad fruit from Matthew mm-hmm. 7, 18, right? A, a, a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. fruit. However, what's interesting about this, Daryl, is what CRT advocates try to do as a result. In an attempt to rescue this admittedly God-forsaken ideology, they appeal to two things. First, they say, they say this, there are things in CRT or that CRT gets right, and therefore it must be yep. used as an mm-hmm. analytical tool to mm-hmm. examine those realities. You've heard this. If, if you heard yes, this once, you've, you've heard this a dozen times, yep. right? Yep. To, th- to this, my response to that is this, even a broken clock gets it right twice a day. <laughs> right. And and, and you, you'd be foolish to leave a broken clock affixed to a wall or better yet, a phone whose time has permanently stopped at like 735 a.m. No one in their right mind would say, you know what, I, I'm going to I'm going to continue to use this phone simply because I know that twice a day this phone is actually going to get the time right. Mm-hmm. You'd, yeah. you'd be stupid to do that. The other thing that CRT advocates try to argue is, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually used philosophy to win others to Christ, right? You've heard this argument too, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. The, pre- the presupposition made here is that since Paul used man-made philosophies, we should be able to use them to do the same as we, quote, eat the meat and spit out the bones, end quote. You've heard that a dozen times, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, the, fir- the first problem with this is that Paul isn't applying a man-made philosophy for the restructuring of society which is actually what CRT's goal is. It, it, yeah. it's the goal of CRT is to apply a man-made philosophy for the restructuring of society. It, it's, it's a power exchange. That's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, Paul is not abandoning the position of the gospel as the sole transformative agent for change. I, I want to slow down and say that Paul is not abandoning the position of the gospel as the sole transformative agent mm-hmm for change or for transformation. Mm -hmm. Social justicians will argue that that those advocating a gospel-only position, as you and I are doing, Daryl, that that idea is not enough, that that the gospel is not enough. For the social justician, the gospel is not enough. It's it's never enough. The the social justician will say, we need laws, we need reparations, Mm -hmm. we need governance, we need government, we need all of these things to step in and do what the gospel, in their words, the gospel was never intended to deal with. So so we need the gospel to deal with those things. It's at this point that I want to be clear and say that I reject that idea altogether. Mm -hmm. I want to be clear about that. And and let let me add some emphasis to that point. The gospel is the good news. That, that another has paid for your sin debt, a debt that you had no ability to pay. This gift of God's eternal grace is not of works, but it is a free gift. Before creation, the triune God of the universe determined to send his son as the wrath-absorbing propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, by faith, we can receive this free gift of God's eternal love demonstrated in this once for all sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. I want to say this. How dare these men form their lips to say the gospel is not enough? 
How dare these human beings who come from the dust insinuate that God's plan fell short on the issue of race and, uh, or that scripture is insufficient and needs the aid of the philosophies of men. Mm -hmm. Every breath they take in such a state should cause them fear and trembling. I'm reminded of the wrath that visited Ananias and Sapphira to Man, a lesser charge of such, of such blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Church of Colossae. He said this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Furthermore, it was Paul who on writing about the gift of God's grace as experienced through the gospel, he would go on to say in Ephesians, he'd say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. For the social justician, the works God prepared beforehand actually in their mind needs help, needs the help of godless philosophies to be made right. I'll say this clearly. They are in error and they need to repent. Bro. Verge, listen, as I'm listening to you, man, I'm thanking the Lord for your prophetic uh, righteous indignation um, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the clarity, man, with what you just said, what you just said. I'm listening to you, bro, especially as you read from Colossians there. Uh, as you were reading Colossians, I turned to Philippians 3 because that's what we do. That's what we do on the Just Thinking podcast. We turn pages. Right. So I'm looking at Philippians 3, verse 17 and 18, where Paul says, brethren, join in following my example. And, and I went here, Virg, especially with regard to what you said in calling out those men and their arrogance and then their pride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, I love what you said, man, in reminding not just them, but us all that we're just dust. Mm -hmm. We're dirt. We're creatures that were made from the dirt of the ground. Who are we? Who are we? We're nothing. We're nobody apart from Christ. Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you. And see, this is this is where Paul is going with respect to those, those individuals who you just called out, Virgil, in Philippians 3.18. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of, of Christ. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Yes. Those are the folks you're talking about. Yes, Those are the folks yes, you're talking yes. about. And, 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 and Paul, uh, Paul admonishes us to, to look out and be wary of those individuals because they're enemies of Christ. They're yes. enemies of Christ. So you're absolutely right, bro. I, sh I so appreciate the prophetic force uh, by which you brought that th those comments that you just shared, man. Thank you so much for that uh, because it's needed. It's needed. Amen. Now, now with all that as background, we can now move on to the question of what is critical race theory. We exegeted the term critical race theory earlier. We gave you a history of critical theory, which was necessary to do. Because it is from the philosophy of critical theory that critical race theory is born. So let's answer that question. What is critical race theory? 
Well, to answer that question, we need to go back in time a little bit uh, to the late 1980s, to be exact, when, according to the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education, a source that I'm going to cite quite often in this episode, by the way, okay, the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. According to that source, in the late 1980s, a meeting took place in the summer of 1989 at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, where 23, quote, legal scholars of color, unquote, met for a weekend workshop. Now, according to that same source, according to the Handbook of Critical Theory, Critical Race Theory and Education, quote, all of the law professors who met at the original CRT workshop taught in predominantly white law schools, and most of them were among the first persons of color hired to teach at their respective institutions. Listen to this part. The faculties that hired them were allowed to give positive considerations to their candidacy because of their race in making the hiring decision. Now that's, biblically speaking, the sin of partiality. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's the sin of partiality. Still quoting the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. Many of these professors had also participated in various critical legal studies or CLS conferences, unquote. So I don't want our listeners to miss the fact, okay, that these law professors who initially met at the original CRT workshop back in 1989 were hired to teach at the institutions at which they were, uh, were employed largely because of their race that their race factored in. Mm -hmm. And here you have a philosophy. The irony here, Omaha, the irony here is that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah. you, you yeah. know where I'm going with this. The irony here is that. I know you where you're have, going. Yep. You, you have a, 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 a quote unquote legal scholars of color who were hired as legal scholars because of their color. And now they have the nerve mm -hmm. to, criti to, 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 be, to be critical, not analytical, critical of uh, United States jurisprudence that they argue uh, had a bias towards people of color. Well, right, right. When, when these same individuals we hi were hired because of a bias towards their color. Are you, are, <laughs> right. Do you get the irony here? It's but crazy. My, my, my larger point is that it's important to know this information as background, because according to the handbook of critical race theory and education, the meeting that was held in 1989 originated from a movement comprised of academics within the legal profession in the 1980s, which was, quote, composed predominantly. Listen to this. I'm quoting composed predominantly of white neo-Marxist, new left and counterculturalist intellectuals within the legal academy. So uh, in other words, this this uh, this this group that met in the 1989 was an outgrowth of a of a predecessor group that formed in the late 1970s that were composed predominantly of white neo-Marxist leftist legal academicians who, according to the handbook, quote, sought to expose and challenge the view that legal reasoning was neutral, value free and unaffected by socioeconomic relations, political forces, or cultural phenomena, unquote. Now, that's very important mm -hmm. because that is why critical does not mean analytical. The critical race theorist seeks to expose and assumes and presumes that 
jurisprudence, especially within the United States, was new was not neutral, that it was not values free, that factors or variables such as socioeconomic relations, political forces, and cultural phenomena factored into those decisions. Now we're going to get to that a little deeper later on. But what these quote neo-Marxist unquote legal scholars did was they went back and looked at certain historical cases, legal cases involving the civil rights of black Americans that had been decided by the United States Supreme Court. Cases such as Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which overturned the court's doctrine of, quote, separate but equal, unquote, that had been embraced by its Plessy versus Ferguson decision in 1896. Other cases that these critical legal scholars examined were the Reconstruction era, Slaughterhouse cases of 1873, the Green versus New Kent County case in 1968, the Keys versus School District Number One case in 1973, Milliken versus Bradley in 1974, Washington versus Davis in 1976, Griggs versus Duke Power Company in 1971, Backey versus Regents of the University of California in 1978 and the United States versus Caroline Products Company in 1942. The Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education goes on to state, quote, CLS pointed out that the law tends to reinforce, I'm sorry, the law tends to enforce, reflect, constitute, and legitimize the dominant social and power relations through social actors who generally believe that they are neutral and arrive at their decisions through an objective process of legal reasoning. The first meeting of CRT emerged out of a sense, okay, a sense that while CLS had developed some very significant insights about how the legal process worked, the movement did not adequately address the struggles of people of color, particularly blacks, unquote. So see, what you're seeing here is not an objective analysis of whether analysis of whether or not prejudice, racial or ethnic prejudice was involved in the aforementioned dis, legal uh, uh, decisions that I mentioned, legal cases that I mentioned. They're they're looking at these situations because they didn't ad adequately address the struggles of black people. Right. This 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 is a this this is this is where the Marxism comes in. This is see this is this this is this is why critical race theory is a movement. It is a movement. It is a is a philosophy with a movement, uh, 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 objective, and goal to uh, 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 to to uh, critique, if you will, for lack of a better word, and to look at uh, American jurisprudence to see if these decisions advance their Marxist goals. Right. I mean, th I mean you think about it, Daryl. I mean, we, you and I, you and I have done what six plus hours on the church of BLM, right? They're, the whole, the whole founding of their organization is on the basis of a, an, an outcome uh, in the Trayvon Martin case that they believe to be unjust, not because the evidence in the case uh, uh, proved that uh, that that that, uh, that 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 there was innocence, uh, you know, on the part of the uh, part of the man who who uh, who murdered Trayvon. Uh, but what 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 they what they do is they don't like the outcome, right? They don't like right. the outcome, right. and as a result of their of their disdain for the outcome, then in their mind that was an unjust outcome, and right. something must be done.
Right. And so, so that's the same thing that you're seeing here mm-hmm. in, in the very origin. So you're seeing mm-hmm. at, at the very beginning of these folks in, in the in the 70s and 80s who, who are coming together uh, to, to identify this new consortium of, of CRT and how it can work in, in legal jurisprudence. What what the, the outworking of that, the fruit of that, so to speak, is the modern day BLM movement. Exactly right. And matter of fact, we're going to connect the two here later on in this episode. But that's a great point that you make. And matter of fact, uh, based on that point that you just made, I just want to reiterate this last the last part of this quote that I was just citing from the handbook of critical race theory and education, where that source says that the first meeting of CRT emerged out of a sense that while CLS had developed critical legal critical legal studies, had developed some very significant insights about how the legal process works. See, no, this is not evidentiary, okay? This mm-hmm. isn't objective. This isn't empirical evidence that the that looking at these uh, legal cases produced objective empirical evidence of discrimination. No, 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 no. They just had a sense, okay? Yeah, they just, they just felt like it did. They just yeah, felt they like did. it did. They felt right, like right, it right. did. So, right. so, so because they felt like it did, then they just uh, are operating on the conclusion that the movement didn't adequately address the struggles of people of color particularly black people. Now, further along, the handbook also declares that, quote, while the legal scholars who met at the first CRT meeting were looking for a community of like-minded individuals. Now, let me pause there. If truth is your goal, what does it matter if you if you uh, uh, operate with a group of like-minded individuals? If see, see, what they're talking about here, these are, again, these are Marxist legal scholars. So when the handbook of critical theory and education says that these legal scholars met uh, who, who met at their initial CRT meeting were looking for a community of like-minded individuals. They were looking for other Marxists. They were looking for other Marxist legal scholars. They weren't looking for people who want to get at the truth, objective truth, mm-hmm. ob- objective who want to undergo and undertake an, inve- an objective empirical investigation of these cases. No, we need, we don't like the, as you said, Om- Omaha, we don't like the, how these cases turned out. Right. We don't like the outcome of these because they didn't advance our struggle. They didn't advance the struggle of black people. So the handbook says that while the legal scholars who met at the first CRT meeting were looking for a community of like-minded individuals, they were also motivated by a desire to understand. Listen to this. They were also motivated by a desire to understand how a regime of white supremacy and its subordination of people of color had been created and maintained in America. Unquote. Unquote. And there you have it, my friends. That is CRT in a nutshell. CRT is a movement that is built upon the uh, uh, subjective premise that a regime of white supremacy exists today in America to subordinate people of color. There you have it. Nothing yeah. objective, nothing empirical about it, nothing analytical about it. It's just based on the presupposition that legal jurisprudence in America has not advanced the struggle of people of color, and therefore, America is racist. Right, Verge, what you got, man? I got man that that that's a great section for people to again to to take a listen to. I'll add a couple of things for our listeners to consider. Number one, Daryl, you would often remind remind us on this podcast uh, that we should never be surprised when sinners sin. We exactly should never be surprised. Right. 
when, when sinners sin. In other, in other words, simply because someone puts on a robe and walks in, onto the, to a bench as a judge does not mean that they are free from the impacts of, of the systemic effects of sin, right? Mm -hmm. R.C. Yep. Sproul would often use the phrase the, the noetic effects of sin. And we we shouldn't be surprised when we witness sinners making sinful decisions, even when it comes to American jurisprudence, right? The right. American judicial system. Mm -hmm. This this leads me to my second to the second point that I'm making about with regard to American jurisprudence. During the founding of our country, natural law was the foundation of American jurisprudence. Now, what's meant by natural law, according to again the Catholic Encyclopedia of Law. It says this, quote, natural law is a system of law based upon close observation of human nature and based upon values intrinsic to human nature that can be deduced and applied independently of positive law. Now, according to natural law theory, all people have inherent rights conferred not by an act of legislation but by God, nature, mm -hmm. and or reason. And so this is, this is important because what happened in the early founding of our country was we moved from the objective standard of God's natural law as evidenced in both special and general revelation, right? We, we, we moved away from the idea that scripture can inform us as to what true justice is. Mm -hmm. And we moved away from that. Let me let, let me not get ahead of myself. See, we see the we, we see the language of natural law in the founding documents, like the Declaration of Independence, where it says this: "We hold these truths to be self-evident." Now, now, how can we hold truths to be self-evident? Well, we can do that because God's natural law reveals the truth of the statement, as understood by all of us who are image bearers of God. Right. This truth this truth is evident that, uh, to all. Does not require legislation by government. Therefore, the basis of natural law applies to both general and special revelation. Now, as our country moved away from God's natural law, American law embraced a Darwinian model of evolutionary jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of natural law as the primary force informing legal minds, legal precedence became the new justice model. The idea was that real justice was an evolutionary process that evolved in the minds of men. Now, if you can understand that and grasp that that happened early on, you understand where I'm going and what's actually taking yep. place with these men that, mm -hmm. that, that, that we're talking about here. Re remember, now, Darwin comes along in 1859. With his book of the, uh, with his book on the origin of species, and from that point, sociologists, economists, and philosophers began developing ways to implement these ideas into culture. Now, now for example, Daryl and I have discussed on this episode in numerous places uh, Samuel Morton, right? Samuel yep. Morton, yeah, and and his and his craniometry. Uh, mm. We talked about it on our show. Morton's craniometry was the false pseudoscience of his day, and it gave us the first glimpse at scientific racism. These same ideas infected and destroyed the foundation of not only science, but also the foundation of our judicial system. So questions like, does God, does the punishment fit the individual? Right. Rather than does rather than does the punishment fit the crime? Those mm -hmm. kinds of questions began to emerge. Mm -hmm. So culture began asking now: Does does the punishment fit the individual, or does it fit the crime? And the the right question is: Does the punishment fit the crime? Right, right. because you have an right. objective 
standard, right? That, right. that, that was what was taking place. So with these two ideas in mind, and let me, let me state them clearly. One, apart from God, sinful men will always make immoral decisions. Yep. Apart from God, sinful men will always make immoral decisions. And number two, apart from God, justice is an arbitrary idea held by those who are in power. Again, let me say it again. Apart from God, justice is an arbitrary idea held by those who are in power. So we shouldn't be surprised that nearly 100 years after the abandonment of natural law, of God's natural law, that we find men appealing to a new batch of racist man-centered philosophies, and an effort to regain what they believe was lost by their ancestors. And there we have what you just walked us through. Bingo. Excellent points, Omaha. Excellent points. You know, as we've said previously, right, critical race theory is an ideological construct that is built upon the notion that the legally codified subordination of people of color, or what many would refer to as systemic mm -hmm. racism, is what originally created America as a nation and what sustains America as a nation to this very day. Or to put it more formally, I want to quote Richard Delgado, one of today's leading critical race theorists from his book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. Well, Delgado defines the critical race theory movement as follows, quote, the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them, listen to this, in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, or environment, group and self-interest and emotions and the unconscious emotions and the unconscious. Did you hear that Omaha? Yes. So, so uh, again, unlike conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses, critical race theory has broadened that category to include emotions and the unconscious. Continuing to quote Richard Delgado from critical race theory and introduction, unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, listen to this, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law, unquote. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. Delgado's definition of critical race theory, see, this is why I, I quote tweeted Tim Keller the other day, where Tim Keller basically uh, uh, sort of uh, came out against uh, folks like you and I. He didn't name us, but he, came, he, he was talking to people like us who oppose critical race theory. He challenged us in that tweet to, hey, don't just don't just read the critics of critical theory. Uh, read read those. I'm sorry. Yeah, don't don't just read the critics of critical theory. Read those who advocate it. Uh, and I told him that I quote tweeted him. I said, well, Tim, don't worry, because that's exactly what we're going to do on this episode. <laughs> we're going to read we're, we're going to read the proponents of critical theory to argue against critical theory, which is exactly what we've been doing. I just quoted mm -hmm. Richard Delgado. Delgado is one of the leading crits. This is, that's what they call themselves. It's sort of a, 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 a nickname for, for folks who advocate critical race theory. They call themselves crits. Capital C, capital R, small I, capital T 
small s, crits, okay? But you look at Delgado's definition of critical race theory that I just quoted, and you, it should immediately recall to our minds uh, and to the minds of our listeners something I said earlier in this episode, Omaha, namely that critical race theory is an incredibly vast and multifaceted topic, okay? Delgado, in his own words, says, no, we're, we're broadening the scope from traditional civil rights and ethnic studies to include things like economics, history, setting, okay, your environment, your, 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 your background, group and self-interest, and even emotions and the unconscious. See, this is why I said early on that this whole a category of critical race theory is incredibly vast and multifaceted. Now, yes. It's like a multi-layered cake. I kind of liken it, Omaha, to a multi-layered cake with each layer having a different color, but the cake is frosted with the same flavor of racist icing from top to bottom. <laughs> that's that's kind of that, how I like in critical race theory. So just get a visual. Good. Critical yep. race theory is a multi-layered cake with each layer having a different color, but it's frosted in the end with the same flavor of racist icing from top to bottom. That cannot now, taste good, man. That can't it cannot, taste good. It cannot, imagine having a CRT cake with a CRT light beer. No, does, that's that, not good. <laughs> that taste, it doesn't taste great. It's less filling, bro. <laughs> <laughs> My point in all this is to our listeners, if you thought critical race theory was only about race, you are solely you are solely and sadly mistaken. It is yeah. it is a a a, a, a sort of a, a veritable cornucopia of Marxist socialist uh, uh, goals and objectives. It is not just about race. So never think that. What do you, what do you got, Omaha? Well, the quote that you gave, man, it makes clear the point that you made earlier of the multifaceted purposes of CRT. Uh, one of the things I appreciate most, though, about CRT advocates and their secular scholarship, and you'll understand why I said secular scholarship in a moment. One of the reasons why I appreciate uh, the CRT advocates, you call them crits, C-R, small yeah, they call, I, They call themselves T-S. crits. Yeah, they call themselves okay. crits. Well, let me let me use their terminology. One of, the, one of the reasons why I appreciate the crits as much as I do in their secular scholarship, I appreciate them for their honesty. I, mm, I, I appreciate yeah. them for their honesty. What I, what I mean is that secular scholars of CRT are at least honest about their desire to destroy the fundamental framework of the Judeo-Christian worldview that all of us mm-hmm. enjoy. Yeah, they're, they're they're at least they're at least honest about that. They push all the chips in with the purpose of letting you know that their their intent is to destroy everything structurally that you've come to know, love, and appreciate about American culture, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly the particularly the Judeo-Christian right. worldview. Right. Secular scholars of CRT understand that the complete and total overhaul of every facet of culture and society, they understand that the, the complete overhaul that they intend to create. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the while, evangelicals, on the other hand, evangelicals, on the other hand, they pretend that CRT is simply an analytical tool. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that we can pull off the shelf and ask a few simple questions and put it back on the shelf whenever we decide mm-hmm. that we're finished with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just at the end of the day, that's just not how CRT works. Now, now I'm, I'm trying to determine, Daryl, and I'll be brief about this. I'm trying to determine, man, and if if they right. And what I mean by they are leaders like J.D. Greer, groups like the African-American pastors of the SBC. Mm-hmm. Do, do they know 
what their advocacy for things like Resolution 9 and CRT actually mean. Do they, do really, right. do, do they really understand what they're advocating for? And the, to the point you just made, the multifaceted layering of this, of this damaging and destructive worldview. So, so the, the, I'm, I'm, my question is, do they really understand it or, or are they merely just men who are ignorant regarding what's at stake? Now, I, I'd hate to believe I would hate to believe that there's something more clandestine at work. Mm-hmm. What's what's at stake at the end of the day is we play this this Russian roulette game with CRT is is the end of our current brand of of evangelicalism. If if yeah. it's not already gone, if it's right. not already gone, right? Right. Uh, right. What what what's at stake is is that that whole process that we that we've come to hold near and dear as a as, as a as a as Southern Baptist. You, we've watched it obliterate. All of the other um, uh, denominations, right? We, we, we've we, we've we've watched it totally destroy and hollow out other denominations, and, uh, and and the reason is because it has nothing to do with reconciling hearts to one another. It has nothing yep. to do with anything salvific. It has nothing to do with righting historic wrong. It has everything to do with separation, division, mm-hmm. and destruction. That's mm-hmm. at the end of the day what, what it's all about. You're exactly right, Omaha, man. Well said. You know, um, in his book titled Discrimination and Disparities, I want to quote the brilliant economist and social commentator Thomas Sowell again. This is from Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities, where Sowell writes this, quote, two of the monumental catastrophes of the 20th century, Nazism and communism, led to the slaughter of millions of human beings by their own governments in the name of either ridding the world of the burden of inferior races or ridding the world of exploiters responsible for the poverty of the exploited. While each of these beliefs might have been testable hypotheses, their greatest political triumphs came as dogmas placed beyond the reach of evidence or logic. Unquote. While each of these beliefs might have been testable hypotheses, their greatest political triumphs came as dogmas placed beyond the reach of evidence or logic, unquote. Do not miss that, listeners, beyond the reach of evidence or logic. This is exactly what you were saying near the top of the episode, Omaha, where critical race theory, it puts itself beyond the reach of criticism, of scrutiny. And let me pause here and say this. That's what Sol just said is precisely what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is a dogma. It is a set of doctrines and beliefs which its proponents place, as Sol said, beyond the reach of evidence or logic. Now, I'm going to expand on that later in this episode, but for the moment, I want to continue with this quote from Sol. Again, quoting from Discrimination and Disparities, Sol continues, quote, discrimination as an explanation of economic and social disparities, which is what CRT claims. CRT claims that that uh, economic and social disparities are all the result of racial discrimination. Right. <clears throat> May have a similar emotional appeal for many, but we can at least try to treat these and other theories as testable hypotheses. But see, this is what this is not what CRT allows. CRT mm-hmm. does not open itself up to testable hypotheses. 
The historic consequences of treating, I'm still quoting Soul, the historic, the historic consequences of treating particular beliefs as sacred dogmas beyond the reach of evidence or logic should be enough to dissuade us from going down that road again. Mm-hmm. Despite how exciting or emotionally satisfying political dogmas and the crusades resulting from those dogmas can be, or how convenient in sparing us the drudgery and discomfort of having to think through our own beliefs or test them against facts, unquote. And see, let me say something, and I don't mean to come across as harsh here, but what Soul is saying here at the end, and I'm going to connect this to what you just said earlier, uh, Omaha, about what's happening within certain denominations within the Protestant and evangelical church in America, is that we have people, we have people in the church today who uh, who who consider uh, investigating the facts of philosophies like critical race theory as drudgery and discomfort. They don't want to put in the work. They right. don't want to put in the work to investigate these worldly man-centered ideologies and philosophies for themselves. Mm-hmm. So they just sit back apathetically and lazily and sleepily. And leave the work to somebody else. Mm-hmm. All all the while, while they're sitting on their lazy boys, all comfortable. These, uh, as as we said earlier, these ideologies, churches are opening their denominations are opening the doors, opening their doors to these ideologies, so that before you know it, voila, it's too late. Right, your 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 church has been uh, sucked in. Your church has been devoured by this worldview. All of a sudden, you got a you got a woke critical race theorist advocate preaching from your pulpit. Mm-hmm. You've got elders who are CRT advocates, and what do you do? A church you've been at for thirty or forty years. Now, all of a sudden, you find oh, I got to find another church. Mm-hmm. Well, you had your opportunity to defend your church against this, and you didn't. Now, I just wanted to get that in there, but let me go back to Soul. What Soul is saying here is Jermaine to the conversation we're having in, in that critical race theory as a worldview, okay, as an ideology. Critical race theory refuses to submit itself to the scrutiny of objective evidence or logic. Mm-hmm. In other words, as Thomas Sowell put it, CRT is not a testable hypothesis. And in that regard, critical race theory is a lot like Teflon, Omaha, in that its proponents, it's, it's, it's the proponents of CRT, they proffer it in such a way as to make sure nothing sticks to it. In terms right. of objective scrutiny or inspection. So in that right. kind of way, CRT is a lot like Teflon. Critical race theory asserts that every ethnic discrepancy or variance that exists in America, particularly in terms of socioeconomic measures, is solely the result of the systematic oppression of black people by white people. Mm-hmm. You see, but it but in making that assertion, proponents of CRT refuse to expose their ideas and their ideals to the analysis and inquiry of objective facts or testable hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Now, now that reality is underscored in an article by Dr. Carl Truman titled Evangelicals and Race Theory. In that article, Dr. Truman says this, quote, please listen closely to this, listeners. Dr. Truman says this, quote, critical race theory, like other critical theories, post-colonialism or queer theory, for example, is self-certifying. Don't miss that, people. Critical race theory, Dr. Truman says correctly, that critical race theory is self-certifying. 
Its basic claims, for example, that racism is systemic or that being non-racist is impossible are not conclusions drawn from arguments. They are axioms and they cannot be challenged by those who do not agree with them. Those who dissent or offer criticism are, by definition, part of the problem. Critical theory, whatever form it takes, relies on the concept of false consciousness, the notion that the oppressors control society so completely that the oppressed believe their own interests are served by the status quo. This is where you hear Omaha, right? You you are accused talking about the whole Charlie Day situation, right? That's what people, other black people, accuse us of being colonized. Right. This is what Truman is talking about. He says those who dissent, like us, those who dissent or offer criticism, by definition, are part of the problem. Critical theory, whatever form it takes, relies on the concept of false consciousness. That is the notion that the oppressors control society so completely that the oppressed believe their own interests are served by the status quo. This is a wonderful idea, Truman says. It allows every piece of evidence that might refute one's theory to be transformed into further evidence of how deep and comprehensive the problem of oppression is, unquote. So in other words, when you have the luxury, as do the proponents and advocates of CRT, of making self-certifying, broad-based generalizations, assertions, and accusations of systemic oppression without fear of having those generalizations, assertions, and accusations challenged at the risk of being labeled a racist or white supremacist, what you've done is you've hit the dialectical lottery because you can (laughs) then suggest as the solution to whatever it is you are asserting, because you alone get to subjectively define and determine what an inequity or a disparity actually is, you can then go on to demand anything you might imagine as a remedy and expect that remedy, whether it be power or money, is usually one of the two, if not both, to be met without explanation or scrutiny because the demand and explanation is itself racist on its face. (laughs) So with CRT, with CRT, this is a treadmill you can't get off of. Right, right. So, and, and speaking of disparities and inequities, as Christians, we need to be rather astute when it comes to the language and vernacular of critical race theory. Yes. Now, I say that because as those whom our Savior has sent out into the world as sheep among wolves, that's Matthew on, 10, man. 16, What we must understand is that oftentimes when it comes to critical race theory, a fundamental tactic that is used by those who propagate that ideology is to leverage terms like disparities and terms like inequities in such a way as to have you believe that there shouldn't be any. Right, right. That's that. Hold on. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. What you just said is critically important. It's so nice. You got to say it twice and you got to slow down. I, folks, you, you've chalked this section full of info. And so w- walk back a couple of, couple of sentences and then help us understand, man, wh- the, the, the last portion of what you just said needs to be amplified because it's critically important for people to understand. Now, Omaha, we talk on every episode. This, is, this, this episode, when it's released, will be episode 108 of the Just Thinking Podcast, and I don't know that we've done a single episode episode where we did not reiterate or iterate the importance and the significance of defining our terms. Yes, we, come on, man, come we, on. We, we have become, among our listeners, renowned for doing yes. that. 
Okay. Yes. And I chat, we challenge our listeners every time uh, we get behind these microphones to define your terms because the terms have meaning. And it's the meaning of these terms is going to establish the context of what you're talking about. This on, is man. why, as I said here, as believers in Christ, we need to be astute. We can't be dumb or ignorant about mm -hmm. the languages, the terms, the vernacular that critical race theorists use. Now, I say that because Christ has sent us out into the world as sheep among wolves. We must understand that we're in, a, we're in the midst of a world full of wolves. Mm -hmm. Okay? And we need to understand that the, the, these wolves that advocate CRT, they oftentimes... Uh, when they're when they're when they're trying to advance their argument, a fundamental tactic that they use that they employ is to propagate the notion, and they leverage uh, terms such as disparities and inequities in such a way as to have you believe that there shouldn't be any. Come on, that man. There Come on. That there shouldn't be anything as inequality. That there should be no see. And, and what our listeners need to understand is that differences is not disparities. That's right. There's a distinct a difference is not a disparity. Do you understand what the distinction is? You must understand what the distinction is. But see, critical theory, critical race theory argues that when it comes to especially economic uh, data and statistics, that differences are disparities. They are not. But CRT argues that because they're disparities, we need to employ special measures for black and brown people to make up for that disparity and bring them up so that there are no inequities, okay? Right. But it, every variance is not an inequity. See, you you guys have got to understand the language that crits try to slip by you, okay? They use disparities, inequities, uh, 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 inequality, terms like that. But yeah. if you're not if you're not astute as to what they're actually saying, they're gonna hoodwink you every time. Every time. Okay, so again, a fundamental tactic that is used by those who propagate that idea, that ideology of critical race theory is to leverage terms like disparities and inequities in such a way as to have you believe that there shouldn't be any. And conversely, that any disparities and, inequity, and inequities as critical race theorists or crits define them that do exist, particularly in terms of black and brown people in comparison to white people, are solely the result of coordinated efforts involving systemic oppression by white people against those black and brown people. Now, please note this. I did not say that there has never been a time in America when there was not a coordinated or legally qualified system of prejudice against black and brown people. I did not say that because there has been. There have been several instances, in fact, one example, however, is this little-known yet significantly historical fact from the book The Color of Law, The Color of Law, subtitled A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. This is just one example of how uh, 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 of how there once was a time in America's history where uh, ethnic prejudice was codified in the law. Now, Rothstein, uh, the author of The Color of Law, is a distinguished fellow and research associate with the Economic Policy Institute, which, according to its website, is, quote, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank created in 1986 to include the needs of low and middle income workers in economic policy decisions, unquote. 
Hey, Daryl, I'm gonna, I'm yo. gonna, I want to, I'm gonna stop you right here, and, Go here's, ahead, bro. and here's, here's why. Go ahead. I, I, I hate to interrupt your train of thought, but I want to amplify something that you're about to do that our critics, for some odd reason, seem to constantly ignore and and miss, and and they act as if you and I uh, don't believe racism exists. They act as if you and I never look clear-eyed into the historic past of, of American racism, like, as, if, as if you and I ignore that there was anything that happened in history, and, and we've done anything but that. And In fact, we, we've got plenty of episodes where we've walked back through some of the most sinful and horrific acts that we can, that we could find, historically speaking, of, 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 of chattel slavery in this country. Uh, we, 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 you, you've read slave narrative on, on our podcast. We, we mm-hmm. walk through those things. The, th- the difference is we, we understand and, and have a, have a, have a book that explains to us what is actually taking place and why I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to add commentary. I just want to amplify the fact that what you are about to do is something that our critics claim we don't do. They claim that we ignore what took place in the historic past. And I just want to amplify the fact that that is exactly the opposite of what you are about to do. Yeah, really. I appreciate you saying that, Omaha, because not only are we theologians, we're also historians. We're historians. And you, what you're referring to, the episode you're referring to is the one we did on slavery reparations. Uh, now, though we oppose uh, slavery reparations, we began that episode. I began the episode by reading about five or six quotes directly from Slave narratives. I have a collection of slave narratives, either in uh, uh, physical book form or on my iPad. I have, I don't know how many, probably 30 something books of slave narratives. And I've said on this uh, podcast many times um, in in my life, in my personal library, uh, aside from the topic of theology, I have more books on slavery than any other topic in my library. I've read more books on sl- the history of slavery than I've read on any other subject outside of the outside of the subject of theology. So, yes, we, we are students of history. We are we are, are, are students of theology. Yes. But we're the, the, the reason we're students of history is because we're students of theology. Mm-hmm. And, and I love how you put it uh, in, in the remarks that you just made. You use the word sinful as the qualifier, as the as the adjective to describe some of the 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 uh, the. Uh, the uh, historical events that have occurred in America. I don't, I don't know why, why do people, why, why do people, especially critical race theory advocates, why do they think because America has a constitution, America has a bill of rights, America has a declaration of independence. Why do they think that this country uh, is supposed to somehow be so behaviorally pristine? Mm. I don't get that. Let me turn a page real quick, because that's what we do on the Just Thinking Podcast. We turn pages. I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Mm-hmm. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. It says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. You alluded to it earlier, Omaha. You said, why do just because a person puts on a black robe and, and walks, out, walks out to take a seat behind a bench, right. doesn't mean that they're going to adjudicate a, 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 a case or a, a legal situation uh, in, 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 uh, in w- without prejudice or, or, or bias, that doesn't mean anything. Absolutely. I remember, I remember when we did the George Floyd episode. One of the points we made on that episode is that wearing a badge is not regenerative. <laughs> right. a, wear, now, a police officer may wear a badge over their heart, 
which they do, I believe. I think they they wear the badge over the left side. I may be wrong, but wearing a badge over their heart or wearing a badge, period, does nothing to regenerate the human heart. Nothing. Nothing at all. It's not regenerative. So it's like mm-hmm. you said earlier, Omaha, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. America has always been constituted of sinners. Right. Every nation on this planet is a nation populated by sinners. Every, cit- every citizen, every citizen in Uganda is a sinner. Mm-hmm. Every citizen in Croatia is a sinner. Every sinner, every, every citizen that occupies an inch of space in the contiguous United States, including all 50 states total, is a sinner. So again, the reason you and I are students of history, Omaha, is because we're students of theology, because we apply the doctrine of homardiology, the doctrine of sin, to everything that happens in America. Mm-hmm. So America's not this unique, pristine, you know, uh, like somebody just took some Clorox bleach and just wiped this nation down since it was founded. No. But at the same time, history also tells us that there would have been no slavery in America had it not been for black Africans who facilitated that slave trade. Absolutely. So if you go, so, so, so as much as critical race theories and social justices like to bring up the history of slavery in America, I've said repeatedly, if your timeline of slavery in America is going to start at Jamestown, Virginia, 1619, you're starting at the wrong chrono- chron- chronological starting point. Mm-hmm. You need to go back thousands, maybe, if, if not hundreds of years, maybe a couple thousand years. Mm-hmm. Because there would have been no slavery in America if there weren't for black Africans who sold their own kinfolk, mm-hmm. as well as tribes people who they captured in various uh, wars uh, and situations of strife. They sold them. Mm-hmm. All that said, let me get back to what I was saying earlier. So, yeah, I did not say that. The, and I'm saying this for the third time now. I did not say that there's never been a time in America when there was not a coordinated or legally qualified system of prejudice against black and brown brown people. There absolutely has been. And I'm just going to I'm just going to refer to one instance. There's been there have been others, but this is one. Quoting from the book, The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Richard Richard Rothstein writes this. This is in chapter four titled Own Your Own Home. This is chapter four of the book, The Color of Law, quote. In 1933, to rescue households that were about to default, the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC. It purchased existing mortgages that were subject to imminent foreclosure and then issued new mortgages with repayment schedules of up to 15 years, later extended to 25 years. In addition, HOLC mortgages were amortized meaning that each month's payment included some principal as well as interest. So when the loan was paid off, the borrower would own the home. Thus, for the first time, working and middle-class homeowners could gradually gain equity while their properties were still mortgaged. If a family with an amortized mortgage sold its home, the equity, including any appreciation, would be the family's to keep. HOLC mortgages had low interest rates, but the borrowers were still obligated to make regular payments. The HOLC, therefore, had to exercise prudence about its borrowers' ability to avoid default. 
Don't miss that, listeners. The HOLC therefore had to exercise prudence about its borrower's ability to avoid default. To assess risk, the HOLC wanted to know something about the condition of the house and of the surrounding houses in the neighborhood to see whether the property would likely maintain its value. The HOLC hired local real estate agents to make the appraisals on which refinancing refinancing decisions could be based. With these agents required by their national ethics code to maintain segregation, hello, with these agents required by their national ethics codes to maintain segregation, it's not surprising that engaging risk, HOLC considered the racial composition of neighborhoods. The HOLC created color-coded maps of every metropolitan area in the nation with the safest neighborhoods colored green and the riskiest colored red. A neighborhood earned a red color if African-Americans lived in it, even if it was a solid middle-class neighborhood of single-family homes, unquote. That was from Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, Chapter 4, titled Own Your Own Home. And there you have it. There, in that segment that I just quoted from Richard Rothstein, is the genesis of the discriminatory policy commonly known as redlining. So, yes, admittedly, there have been periods in America's history when sinful ethnic prejudice was based in law. But that's merely an example of how sin affects the human heart. Genesis 6-5 says that the intent of man's heart is only evil from his youth. That's Genesis 6-5. The intent of man's heart has been evil from his conception. But what critical race theories endeavor to do is to resurrect and re-prosecute those historical sins and leverage them in such a way as to hold white people hostage until they submit and acquiesce to their own set of sinfully prejudicial rules and decrees, Mm -hmm. which apply exclusively to white people, having Mm -hmm. subjectively adjudicated that all white people are are complicit in those historical sins simply by virtue of being white. Yes. That's what critical race theory does. They resurrect and re-prosecute those historical sins and blame white people as being complicit in them simply by virtue that they're white. Now, a case in point is one Miss Jackie Hill Perry, who in a recent video discussion said this, quote, for many white Christians, if they don't participate in these things that they categorize as racist, then they exclude themselves from the label. No you most likely still have a lot of implicit bias growing up in a society where whiteness is king, unquote. That was Jackie Hill Perry. Now, conversely, there's this quote from the book, The Black Christ by Kelly Brown Douglas. Kelly Brown Douglas in her book, The Black Christ, writes this, quote, white supremacy is about safeguarding the illusion of America's sense of exceptionalism. In other words, protecting white space. It does not matter whether or not white people recognize themselves as racist. What matters is that this country's very identity is inextricably connected to an Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon exceptionalist myth that must be protected at all costs, unquote. That was Kelly Brown Douglas from her book, The Black 
Christ. She says it doesn't matter whether or not white people recognize themselves as racist. You're racist because you're white. Mm -hmm. And all that matters is that you believe that protecting your white identity and your Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism is all that matters. And, and Kelly Brown Douglas says, no, we need to bust that myth at mm -hmm. all costs. Awesome. Well, two two quick thoughts come to mind, man, as you walk through the last section. And the first is this, that there, there was one word in the section that you walked through that really caught my attention. And of all the things you said, the one that captured my attention the most was the word luxury. You said, mm, yep. you said the CRT proponents have the luxury of making the self-certifying broad-based generalizations, assertions, and accusations of systemic oppression without fear of having those generalizations, assertions, and accusations challenged at the risk of being labeled a racist or a supremacist. One of the things that made me laugh was when you said at that point they have hit the dialectical lottery. <laughs> yep. That's a win-win for them. That's a win-win for them. I, I want to push the envelope on that idea and add that only in a first world country like America does CRT have the chance to flourish? Man, come on, bro. Come on. Right? Only, only in a nation bent on righting historical wrongs can CRT find fertile ground. Only in a country devoid of systemic racism can you find people able to cry systemic racism and not be crushed by the same system they claim is racist. Man, come only, on, only in a country where capitalism is allowed to flourish can you find black millionaires with Super Bowl rings advocating theft through reparations or taking a knee during a game to the applause of virtue signalers around that same so-called racist nation. O only in a country where black and white can work together marry one another, have children together, are you able to make the argument that the police are hunting down blacks when all the evidence to the contrary exists? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you'll be the first to call the police when someone lo who looks exactly like you are involved in an act of violence. Man, come on, bro. C CRT is a dangerous game, man. It, 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 actually, it actually destroys those it claims to help. It cries racism while clinging tightly to the same racist hatred it claims to despise and hopes to eliminate. My, my thought, my, my second thought is this, and, and, and you, you might, you might want to grab your hat for this one. Oh boy, here we go. Bring it, bro. Bring it. My, my, my second thought is of the almighty, all powerful, all knowing white man. That's, 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 <laughs> That's that's something I'm thinking. I'm thinking about the Almighty, all on, powerful, all-knowing white man as defined by CRT. Th those who advocate CRT and hold to its precepts are, without a doubt, the purest form of white supremacists. And, and brother, I'm, I, this is this is not hyperbole. When when you consider the whitenesses that the, the, the whiteness, the whiteness supreme systemic power. Right. Mm -hmm. Whiteness is supreme systemic power as defined by CRT. You have to recognize that whiteness is has attributes that are actually godlike. Great point, bro. Great point. I, 
I can think of no other aspect of human existence with an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present power that whiteness actually has as defined by the CRT system. So, so powerful is whiteness that, like sin, we must repent of it, and society at large must be repaired, re- prepared to engage in the work of anti-racism, which never ends in an effort to eradicate the world of the sinister nature of almighty whiteness. Bro. That was fire, man. That was fire. What I like at what I like the best though is what you said there at the end. It never ends. It never, it never ends. ends. It never <laughs> ends. See, this is what you have to understand about critical race theory, and really, it's the sort of whole uh, the whole social justice movement uh, as a whole. They can't afford for it to end. They cannot. So the 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 reconciliation, the uh, uh, reparative uh, uh, steps that they say that they demand. America, and when they say America, they mean white people, uh, that white people take toward advancing a uh, a community where everyone is equal. See, they cannot afford for that to happen. They, no, in they in reality, they can't afford for that to happen because if it ever did, then they, would be, rendered, they would be rendered moot. They, they, they would be rendered powerless. They right. would have, they would have, they could write no more books. They couldn't. They they couldn't get rich off of writing all these books and and uh, getting uh, 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 retained by uh, companies like Coca Cola to teach their employees how to not be white, to be less white. That their their whole existence would vanish, as far as purpose and meaning goes. So critical mm-hmm. race theories they cannot afford for what they say they want to actually happen. They cannot have that happen because if they did, it would be the end of them. It would be the end of their entire movement. Mm-hmm. So th- th- see, see th- this, 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 listeners. This is how you have to think about critical theory. You have to exegete their entire philosophy, piece by piece, piece by piece. You have to deconstruct it and then put it back together. And when you put it, when you reconstruct it, you will see it for the hollow Swiss cheese ideology that it is. Critical race theory operates on a multiplicity of mutable, changeable, and changeable precepts, the most Mm -hmm. fundamental of which is the notion that racism is not some random, isolated act of individuals behaving badly, but rather that racism is the normal order of things in U.S. society, the usual way society does business, and the common everyday experience of most people of color. Now, just as black liberation theology has its father in the late Dr. James Hal Cohn, critical race theory has its father as well, the late Dr. Derek Albert Bell Jr. And if you're familiar with that name, yes, that's the same Derek Albert Bell Jr. who, in a 2005 book which he co-authored with Richard Delgado and Gene Stefancic titled The Derek Bell Reader, said this, quote, I live to harass white folks, unquote. Mm-hmm. That was Derek mm-hmm. Albert Bell, the father, the father of critical race theory. Now, according to the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education, quote, the late professor Derek A. Bell is considered the, quote, father of critical race theory, unquote, perhaps because of his pro- prolific writing on the topic, his instrumental role in educating many cohorts of law scholars who fostered the movement, and the principles by which he lived his life and career, unquote. In his book, 
Faces at the Bottom of the Well, subtitled The Permanence of Racism, Derek Bell makes the following assertion. Again, I'm quoting Derek Bell from his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. Quote, black people are the magical faces at the bottom of society's well. Even the poorest whites, those who must live their lives only a few levels above, gain their self-esteem by gazing down on us. Surely they must know that their deliverance depends on letting down their ropes. Only by working together is escape possible. Let me pause right here a second. See, but this escape, critical race theorists cannot, they cannot, even if they were right, they cannot afford for this quote unquote escape to happen. They cannot, they can't afford for that escape to materialize. They cannot afford for white people to let down their ropes and help them up. Because if that were to occur, if that were to come to fruition, critical race theory would go poof. Okay, so continuing with this quote from Derek Bell. Over time, Many reach out, meaning many white people, many reach out, but most simply watch, mesmerized into maintaining their unspoken commitment to keeping us, that is black folks, where we are at whatever cost to them or us, unquote. That was Derek Albert Bell from his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. Now, Bell's words of woe and victimhood bring to my mind some of the key theoretical propositions upon which critical race theory rests. They are these. There are five. One, interest convergence. Interest conversions. Two, unconscious discrimination. Three, intersectionality. Four, narrative analysis and storytelling. And five, revisionist history. Okay? Interest convergence, unconscious discrimination, intersectionality, narrative analysis and storytelling, revisionist history. Now, of those five propositions, I would argue that interest convergence, interest convergence is the most often employed tactic by modern day critical race theorists. Now, make no mistake, critical race theorists apply all five of those propositions. But as I survey the sociopolitical landscape in America in general and in the evangelical church in particular, interest convergence is what I most often see evidence of. Now, that said, the question becomes, what is interest convergence anyway? Okay, what is interest convergence? Well, I'm glad you asked. Interest convergence is a theoretical proposition that is credited to Derek A. Bell, the gentleman that I just quoted a minute ago. According to Bell, interest convergence is based upon the idea that white people will seek racial justice only to the extent that there is something in it for them. In other words, interest convergence is about alignment, not altruism. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Interest convergence is about alignment, not altruism. Interest convergence says that you cannot expect those who control the society to make altruistic or benevolent moves toward racial justice. Instead, civil rights activists must look for ways to align the interests of the dominant group that is white people with those of racially oppressed and marginalized group groups, unquote. <clears throat> now, one example of the concept of interest conversion of how interest conversion works to quote, align the interests of the dominant group with those of racially oppressed and marginalized groups, unquote, as Derek A. Bell said is black lives matter or BLM. Now remember, 
Interest Convergence argues that white people, because they control society, will respond to the needs of oppressed and marginalized groups of people only insofar as what concerns those marginalized groups converges with what concerns white people who are in power. So what does BLM do? BLM says, oh, so you won't give in to our demands? Okay, well, in that case, we'll just burn your businesses down. How about that? You'll care then, won't you? Or BLM will say, well, well, uh, uh, we'll just show up by the thousands on the freeway so you can't get home from work to spend time with your white supremacist family or make that flight to the airport that you're already running late for. Or, or they'll say, oh, oh, you don't want to listen to what we have to say? Okay, well, in that case, how about a few hundred of us show up at 2, 2 a.m. with bullhorns and wake up you and your entire neighborhood? You see, that's how BLM employs the concept of interest convergence toward the goal of getting their demands met either by force or coercion. But perhaps the most diabolical thing about critical race theory is that it sees everything in terms of what is called zero sum. That is, critical race theorists, at least as far as black and brown people and various intersectionally oppressed groups are concerned, they see every ethnic disparity or inequity as being the result of an advantage that was afforded to a white person because of systemic racism. Now, With that in mind, listen to this from the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE. The Foundation for Economic Education put it this way in an article published in its website on September 14, 2020. Quote, this is very important. Please don't miss this. I'm quoting the Foundation for Economic Education. Quote, the pre-CRT civil rights movement had emphasized equal rights and and treating people as individuals as opposed to as members of a, quote, racial collective, unquote. I looked, quote, I looked to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, unquote, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said. In contrast, CRT dwells on inequalities of outcome. This is what you said earlier, Omaha. CRT dwells on inequalities of outcome which it generally attributes to racial power structures. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen from the government training curricula, modern CRT forthrightly judges white people by the color of their skin, prejudging them as racist by virtue of their race. This race-based, quote, pre-trial guilty verdict, unquote, of racism is itself by definition racist. The classical liberal, quote, harmony doctrine, unquote, was deeply influential in the movements to abolish all forms of inequality under the law, from feudal serfdom to race-based slavery to Jim Crow. But with the rise of critical race theory, the cause of racial justice became more influenced by the fixations on conflict, discord, and domination that CRT inherited from Marxism. Social life was predominantly cast as a zero-sum struggle between collectives, capital versus labor for Marxism, whites versus people of color for CRT. A huge portion of society's ills were attributed to one particular collective's diabolical domination, capitalist hegemony for Marxism, white supremacy for CRT. Now listen to this last sentence. Just as Marxism demonized capitalists, CRT vilifies white people. Both try to foment resentment, 
envy, and a victimhood complex among the oppressed class it claims to champion, unquote. What you got, Omaha? A couple things, man. If, if if you go back to what you shared earlier, I thought about when you talked about interest convergence, and I, I, this, this is not even in, in my notes. I just thought about it. Those benevolent whites who are woke, who think they are down for the cause, they have, um, they they they've, they've checked their privilege. They've they've decided that they're that that they're that they're they're going to abandon white fragility. And, and they join the cause, right? Right. Even in their even in their joining of the cause, they're only looked at not as altruistic and 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 benevolent. They're they're looked upon as 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 allies who align for a purpose, but still are not to be trusted. That's why when you if you go back and look at some of the some of the video footage of what was happening uh, in in um, in Portland, Oregon, for example, right. or in Seattle, mm-hmm. Washington, for example. You still see all of those people, white people, white students, white kids who are down for the cause, but are still being berated, you know, still being told that they need to give up something, that they need to hand somebody a dollar or hand somebody a water. Or I mean, they're still being they're still being, you know, cared for as if or, or uncared for. They're still being talked to like they're like they're part of an enemy group. Right. Right. So, yes. There's there's no there's no benefit in aligning with the cause of of CRTers with their worldview because they they never see you as completely human to begin with. I mean, it's just kind of the nature of of their ideological framework. Here here here's here's my thoughts more encapsulated. Can anyone name a culture of people who after suffering historical racism overcame through the use of heavy doses of victimology? Now, I'm not I'm not attempting to suggest that racism isn't real or victims of discrimination don't exist. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is that for far too long within black, black and brown communities in, in particular, drunken on the victimhood narrative, many believe oppression to hold some sort of inherent virtue calling card that will result in salvation. Mm-hmm. I, I can think of no other ethnic group for which this is true. As, right. as for the as for the idea of interest convergence, the fairest and freest of ec- of, of of economic uh, uh, the fairest and freest system of economic uh, world power that that the world has ever known, which is capitalism, is is actually built upon the idea of interest convergence. Right. So, so right. So exactly. We, Great we point. Have a, Go ahead. We have a free, fair system of, 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 of economics. This is the freest, fair system that the world has ever known. And this is built upon interest convergence. What they've done is, is, is they vilified the idea of interest, conver- interest convergence. Free human beings with the freedom to choose what benefits them best engage in mutually beneficial exchanges. Now, for CRT advocates, th- they racialize this idea. Now, now, the fact that they do so is not surprising. However, it's also not very helpful. So, so the other thing I'll say about interest convergence is that it assumes or presupposes motive. It presupposes motive. Yes, yes. Right? And, and motive is simply uh, adjudicated on the basis of melanin. So I, I could, I, if, if I'm interacting with someone with the same level of melanin, I, I guess they're altruistic in that in, engagement, even though mm-hmm. it's mutually 
beneficial. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if your melanin is, is lighter, a lighter shade than mine, then I have to assume that that by by definition, by default, right? The interest convergence right. in that instance, yes. by default, you're, you're guilty of some of some form right. of hidden racism. Right. Uh, finally, and furthermore, to the point that we made earlier in this episode regarding CRT, words like interest convergence, man, they only find their meaning in academia. I mean, yes. No, no one is accounting for this kind of thing in the real world. I, 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 I was asking my wife as I prepared for this this episode. I was talking to her about interest convergence, and she looked at me like like I was speaking in tongues. She's like, "What mm-hmm. are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what does that even mean? Right? Yeah, these yeah. these concepts, these words that they they begin to use, they 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 don't mean anything in the real world. In a in a godless world, uh, in the godless world rather of CRT." Altruism doesn't exist. It can exist, right? If if it if it did, CRT wouldn't exist, right? C- CRT would be unable to flourish in an environment where people have benevolence and and altruistic behavior that's formed on the basis of an understanding that we're image bearers of God and deserve distinct value, dignity, and worth in our treatment of one another. I'll turn it back over to you. You know, Omaha, when you talk about the sort of uh you know, academic uh, gobbledygook, you know, these terms that the academicians, really what I find in my own research on critical race theory is that most of the stuff that's out there about critical race theory is written by academicians for academicians. Right. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? Why is the, uh, why is, why is it that it's the, the academy that um, is, 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 is sort of bearing the lion's share of resources on critical race theory that are available right now. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't think that's an accident. The reason I say that is, is, is because it's the educational institutions that critical race theories use to funnel that worldview and that philosophy, philosophy down to your children. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are sending your children to liberal colleges and universities whose professors, not only, not only professors, not only the instructors, but the administrators. The administrators are Marxists. The administrators are crits. And you're sending your children to these institutions to be educated, especially if you're, and and let me tell you this, if you are a parent, you have uh, college-age children who you're sending off to secular institutions to get a liberal arts education, I promise you the first goal of that instructor is to de-Christianize your child. Mm-hmm. It's not to educate them; it's to dechristianize them. Education is just the means by which they accomplish that. Mm-hmm. So it's no it's no accident that the vast majority of resources that you can find on critical race theory are written by academicians, secular men and women with uh, 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 PhDs in sociology, philosophy, education, and the like. Research it for yourself, and I think you'll find the same thing. So this this is no accident. Mm-hmm. They're using read 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 books like what we've been quoting here, the uh, handbook for critical uh, race theory and education. Uh, read Patricia Hill Collins' book, Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Um, mm-hmm. Read read everything you get your hands on on critical race theory. I think you'll find a common thread that these resources are pr- written and produced by academicians who are Marxists at worst, socialists at best, 
who want to use education as a conduit to totally transform the United States mm-hmm. into this Marxist utopia. They hate capitalism. They hate the Judeo- Judeo-Christian work ethic. They they want to rewrite history as we've proven. They want to rewrite history. Re- they want to paint the White House black. But you're absolutely right, Omaha. It's academic. It's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's a worldview that is predominantly propagated and pro- and proffered and argued by academicians. I just wanted to say that as an aside. Now, back to um, following up your comments. Now, I just want to say, uh, you know, if, if the claims that America is inherently built upon and sustained by systemic racism, if that weren't enough, another form of racism that critical race theory say exists in America is what is known as neo-racism, okay? Neo-racism. Now, according to the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Theory, neo-racism is a term coined by Dr. Etienne Balabar. That last name is spelled B-A-L-I-B-A-R. Dr. Etienne Balabar is Professor Emeritus of Moral and Political Philosophy at the University of Paris. Neo-racism is Balabar's term for what he describes as, quote, the prevalent new modality of racism, unquote, or what he calls quote, racism without race, unquote, which emerged in the 1970s. Whereas racism used to be premised on the idea of race as biological heredity, now in the post-colonial era, it tends to be focused on cultural differences. Don't miss that, listeners. Have you ever considered racism, the definition of racism, as being defined in terms of cultural differences? Yeah, that's racism too now. It surfaces in debates about immigration, assimilation, and multiculturalism. See, this is why critical race theorists are so adamant about open borders and letting what they call undocumented citizens into the United States just willy-nilly. Let's just open the borders and let everyone in because the multiculturalism is the goal because we have to destroy whiteness in America. We have to destroy it, okay? So this surfaces in debates. Now, this sort of uh, racism as cultural, as defined in terms of cultural differences, surfaces in debates about immigration, assimilation, and multiculturalism. And although its tone tends to be respectful, its intent is always to preserve the pillars of racial segregation, both ideologically and practically. Now, are you beginning to understand now why I said at the top of this episode that critical race theory is a topic that is incredibly vast and multifaceted, and it isn't just about race? If you're a white person, you cannot win. Critical race theory has demonized you from end to end, from pillar to post. So as a white person, you cannot win with critical race theorists. It's utterly impossible. There is no way you can emerge unscathed from its accusatory yoke of white supremacy and oppression that critical race theories are going to theorists are going to throw at you. Mm-mm. And as I say that Omaha, I'm reminded of something Thomas Sowell 
Thomas Sowell, who dropped out of high school at the age of 16 and who himself was steeped in Marxism for more than 20 years, Sowell wrote this in an article from July 24, 2012. In that article, article Sowell said this. He said, quote, racism is not dead, but it is on life support being kept alive by politicians, race hustlers, and people who get a sense of superiority by denouncing mm-hmm. others as, quote, racist, unquote. Thoughts, mm-hmm. Omaha? Mm-hmm. Well, again, I mean, I, I go back to what you said. There's no way you can emerge unscathed as a white person. I mean, that, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, e- even if you think that uh, th- that you're aligning yourself. We mentioned this in the in the in the last section. Even if you believe yourself to be aligning yourself with the cause, so to speak, you- you're still going to at some point in time be exposed to the fact that you're you're deemed a white supremacist, and so that's kind of how that that begins to work. Right now, if you if you if you remember at the beginning of the show, I said that CRT is the new form of culturally acceptable racism. Uh, and I'll, I'll add here that CRT claims that it that 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 its form of racism is actual justice. And we, we talked about this. We talked about the fact that that what they what they're positing is outcomes based, right? And the outcomes are based upon their ethnicity. So what they want to see is not an outcome based upon the facts. They're not interested in outcomes on the basis of truth. They're not interested in outcomes based upon the evidence. They're interested in outcomes based upon their own preferred ethnic makeup. Right. And so what, what they're what they're positing, what they're putting forth, what they're trying to amplify is is in essence racism to combat racism. And that's right. that's exactly what, that's exactly what they're doing. I agree with with with, with what with what uh, Thomas Sowell said that racism is on life support. Uh, and that CRT ensures that that racism's uh, that racism maintains life by using it to recreate a world in the image of its its own version of an anti-racist utopia, right. and and their their anti-racist utopia it, it, it promises things that that only it, it makes the promise the false promise of things that only God will bring about upon the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. That that's 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 what's happening at the end of the day, and so what they're believing themselves to be—they're replacing their ideology with with their own. Uh, with they're, they're replacing the the ideology of the Judeo Christian worldview with their own, and in an effort to usurp God from His throne, and 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 they're they're believing that they are to bring about that which only Christ is is to bring about in His return. Amen. Thank you. Well said. I want to thank you for taking us back to the word, man. But that's all we can do. That's all we have. You know, you remember the article I cited, I cited earlier uh, by Dr. Carl Truman, who mm-hmm. rightly pointed out that CRT is, quote, self-certifying, unquote. Now, that is precisely where scripture comes in to shine the light of the objective truth of a holy and righteous God upon a, upon a paganistic worldview that does not subject itself to such objectivity as the word of God. Now, the word of God is the only self-certifying truth that exists. Mm -hmm. I want to repeat that. God's word is the only self-certifying truth that exists. And we know this from such texts as 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, mm-hmm. notwithstanding all that we've discussed to this point, Omaha, in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, what I want our listeners to understand, and please hear me on this, is that critical race theory, 
fundamentally is a moral proposition. Critical race theory is a moral proposition. And what I mean by that is that critical race theory as a philosophy, as an ideology, as a worldview is proffering to the church and to the world that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Right. In other words, that there is such a thing as truth. But the problem with that is that CRT is making that moral proposition not against an objective standard of truth, but against his own subjective standard of what truth is. Right. Now, it's that kind of subjectivity that is the Achilles heel of critical race theory and is what Christians must educate themselves to recognize and be ready to respond to. Now, you're no doubt familiar with the euphemism whereby a person is said to see the world through rose-colored glasses, right, Omaha? Well, critical race theorists, Critical race theorists see the entire world through race-colored glasses. In other words, ethnic partiality is inherent to every aspect of CRT. There is not a single tenet, not a single dimension or component of critical race theory that is not rooted in the sin of ethnic partiality. Now, though it is not often talked about, let alone preached about in the evangelical church today, scripture has a lot to say about the sin of partiality, regardless of what form it takes. Now, in the NASB, the word partiality appears 18 times in the scriptures, 10 times in the Old Testament and eight times in the New Testament. The word means to show deference to, to recognize, to acknowledge or regard or to pay attention to, to notice or to discern. And it, it means those things in a, pre, a sinfully prejudicial way, okay? But as it relates to our discussion of critical race theory, Omaha, I would ask our listeners to prayerfully consider these words from Job, the book of Job, chapter 34, verses 16 through 19, all right? Listen to this text, to this passage, with that definition of partiality in mind that I just gave you, that the biblical definition means to show deference to, to recognize, to acknowledge, to regard, to pay attention to, to notice, or to discern. This is Job 34, verses 16 through 19. But if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound. This is is Job's friend Elihu speaking to him. But if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn the righteous mighty one who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones? who shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich above the poor, for they all are the work of his hands. That was Job 34, 16 through 19. Either who is reminding Job, God shows no partiality to regards who you are. He doesn't care if you're prince, king, rich, poor. All of them are the work of his hands. They all bear the image of God. Now, lest we forget, critical race theory is rooted in Marxism, a worldview that is inherently anti-God and consequently holds to no concept whatsoever of the reality of God, let alone the principle that every human being is created in God's image, or as Elihu said to Job, that we all are the work of God's hands. The biblical doctrine of the Imago Dei, that is, that each of us is created in the image of God, leaves no room at all for sinful partiality of any kind. 
But here's the thing, Omaha. Critical race theory is built upon the set of partiality and thus, in order to be successful in carrying out its Marxism-influenced goals and objectives, it requires that each of us, as God's image bearers, as people whom God himself has sovereignly endowed with the unique attributes and characteristics, such as our ethnicity, CRT mandates that we, that we be divided into groups and then into subgroups and then into subgroups of those groups so as to pit those various groups and subgroups against one another under the guise of some warped socio-political construct of justice, equality, and equity. So never think that critical race theory is only about, quote, race, unquote. It's not. Critical race theory is an entire worldview. It is a worldview that seeks to bring about an intersectional society and world in which both opportunities and outcomes are not are, are based not in truth that is objective and immutable, that's equity, but in vindictive and prejudicial principles and precepts that are subjective and changeable depending upon what direction the winds of white supremacy and black oppression happen to be blowing. That's equality. That's how they define equality. Mm -hmm. Now, consider it as an example, one Brandon Hasbrook. Brandon Hasbrook, associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law, who, in an article published on the website thenation.com on December 17, 2020, argued that in order to stem the tide of systemic racism in America, that the votes of black people should count twice. It's what he calls, it's what Hasbrock calls vote reparations, okay? In that article, Brandon Hasbrook writes this, quote, we can implement vote reparations by double counting ballots cast by all black residents. The poisonous legacy of slavery applies to black people regardless of when we or our ancestors arrived in this country. Vote reparations should also extend to Native Americans. Slavery is rightly called America's original sin, but so too was the United States' genocidal seizure of land from its original inhabitants. Various legal forms of disenfranchisement have applied to them. It wasn't until 1962 that all Native Americans were allowed to vote, and even then they faced and still face electoral obstacles. These are not only the examples of American oppression. These are not the only examples of American oppression. We should include in vote reparations others who have suffered similar disenfranchisement. Vote reparations would create possibilities to build what W.E.B. Du Bois called, quote, abolition democracy, unquote, or the practice of achieving a racially just society. This is to your point, uh, Omaha, where they use racism uh, to uh, they use racism themselves to argue against racism. Yeah. Abolition democracy invites us to engage with abolition, not as a finite goal, but as a radical process of challenging injustices wherever and in whatever form they might appear. Vote reparations would empower us to replace oppressive institutions with life affirming structures of economic, social and political equality. And if our elected representatives did not prioritize this transformational work, we could vote them out because white votes currently count more than black ones. Double counting black votes would restore electoral balance. Vote reparations would be a giant step 
toward remedying our nation's long history of denying and devaluing black votes. To address systemic racism, we must transform how we choose our government. Even if vote reparations aren't instituted, black voters will keep tires, tirelessly dragging our states toward a more perfect union. But just imagine our country if our votes counted twice, unquote. Omaha, man, what, 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 I know you have something to say, but what in the world is there to say after some ridiculousness like that? It's, it is absolutely that it's ridiculous. I, what it made, what it caused me to think about was I actually, I actually wanted to go back and look the episode that you and I did on politics and the black church episode number 87. I'm going to, I'm going to encourage folks to go back and look at that. I when when I when I initially thought about that, bro, I, I, I what raced through my mind when you said that was I need to go and and pull up the top uh, ten, you know, democratically controlled uh, cities, and look at the economic their economic standing. And again, I, I, I don't I I hate to make this. In fact, I'm my. my let me let me let me start by saying this. My reason for saying it and framing it in that way is because you and I both know that in the black church, 98.9% of black folk vote democratic. Yes. Right? Okay, so so, yes. so 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 the basis for me saying that isn't partisan or 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 political from a standpoint of of, of me having an axe to grind against that, Democrats. That, that's that's just a factual data point right there I, absolutely that's that's that, that and, and thank you that's that's the point i'm making so my thought was to go to to go back and look at the the, the top 10 cities black cities in particular where democratic politics run amok and all you'd be doing if you applied what, what, what Brandon Housen Hasbrook is, is stating with with counting our votes twice is is you would be amplifying and magnifying the the absolute destruction of cities around the country uh, who would vote Democratic and put in those policies that are that are destroying cities around the country. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. But what also makes <laughs> sense is that they don't think that far ahead. They don't think like that. <laughs> Right. Right. They, that's, they, that's, they don't think they, they don't think about the downstream impacts of this idiocy, such as ca- uh, counting, counting our votes twice. It's, it's ridiculous. Right. It's, it's 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 not even it, it's not even necessary because we we all know how we are going to vote and, and just doubling down on the number of us who are voting in that direction. I don't know how the, how it helps anything. But let me let me get to that was just a random. Can, can I just add to that as well? Let me let me go off script. Here, what, what, what's interesting to me, just going back to your point about how, uh, you know, historically speaking, uh, black voters in America tend to vote 98 percent Democratic. Uh, what's interesting about that, you remember the passage that I cited earlier from uh, Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, um, the, the, the practice of redlining was instituted and facilitated by a Democrat president. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, what's what's interesting here in 2021 is that black voters, just think about it, Omar. Think about it. Black black voters are the only ethnic voting block where one political party 
has an almost monopolistic hold. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. There is no other ethnic voting bloc in America that comes close to black voters to where the Democrat Party can pretty much assume every election cycle that they're going to get almost 10 out of 10. They're gonna, if you line up 10 blacks, the Democrat Party knows they're going to get nine of them. Mm-hmm. They know this. They don't have to complain. But here you have here you here you have uh, uh, black voters primarily going to looking to the same political party for rescue that enslaved them in this nation. That's a historical fact. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me just add this, bro. Because man, if I don't get this out, bro, we're gonna have to do a part two on this. Here, here's the deal. It, in, in America, I'm talking about, it was, it was the Democrat Party that didn't want slavery to end. Okay. It was the Democrat Party that didn't want the Emancipation Proclamation. It, did, it was that so, so that even after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation began to take hold, it was white supremacist Democrats who instituted the peonage system in the South. Uh, otherwise known as slavery by another name. It was Democrats. It was white Democrats who employed Jim Crow and the black codes. Uh, it was because of white supremacist Democrats that uh, uh, legislation such as the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act were necessary. And the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments called the Reconstruction Amendments were necessary. And then here you are. Here we are in 2021 where you have nine out of 10 black voters uh, brainwashed and absolutely to to thinking that the same political party that enslaved them in this nation cares about them enough to rescue them from the economic poverty that their policies are mostly responsible for. Right, right. Unbelievable, man. Go ahead and take it, man. I just had to get that out. Absolutely. Well, as, as we mentioned earlier, CRT is a direct attack on two things. And, and I, I want our listeners to know and understand this with crystal clarity. CRT is a direct attack on biblical sufficiency and gospel sufficiency. Biblical Amen. sufficiency Amen. and gospel sufficiency. By biblical Fundam- sufficiency, fundamentally, that's the issue. Fundamentally, that's the issue. By biblical sufficiency, you had referenced earlier Second uh, Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse seventeen says this: "For that the, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every." Good work. And while that verse of scripture is foundational, I'd also point to these texts of scripture. And so if you if you have a pen, I'd write these down. Psalm 73, 24, uh, Psalm 119, 105, 2 Peter 119, and Jude 3. The, the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith reads this way: 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says this: the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will without uh, will that is necessary for salvation. All that's saying is that general revelation, there's more to it that's necessary for the purpose of salvation. But God has has given us enough knowledge, enough wisdom, enough understanding so that we are without excuse for our sins against him. The, the, the confession goes 
confession goes goes on to say this that the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation faith and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the holy scriptures nothing is ever to be added to scriptures either by revelation of the spirit or by human traditions Man, get them, bro. Get them. That's critically important. Ne nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. And so, th these kinds of things are important. I, again, I I got accused of of, of not of not uh, of not owning understanding what biblical sufficiency is. That I need to I need to anchor my ideas in 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 the in the in the creeds of old. I'm a 1689 guy. OK, at the yep. at the at the at the end of the day, I'm a Bible guy and yep. and, and, and and we're 1689 is, is, is amplifying and referencing scripture. Scripture itself speaks for and attests for itself that it is indeed sufficient. And so that, that's what I mean when I say biblical sufficiency. What I mean by gospel sufficiency, I, I'd reference Ephesians chapter one and Ephesians chapter two, that the gospel is sufficient, that, that, that in times past, that, that, that before God laid the, that before God the Father laid the foundation of the earth, he had a plan for our salvation Amen, and that that bro. salvation was sufficient. Ephesians chapter two, that, 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 it, that it is an act of God's grace. That, that we get the opportunity uh, to engage through faith, not of works that any of us may boast, but, but, that, but that God is the original, that, that, that God is the, the one who originates this salvation, that salvation is a monergistic work of God the Father, having a twofold impact, at least, if not more. One, by, by uh, adjudicating our sin uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the sacrifice of his son, thereby allowing us who repent of sin and place our faith in him to, to repent of that sin, place faith in him and live in, in, in eternal uh, glory with God the Father. Th that we've been brought near to God through the sacrifice of the Son. Not only has reconciliation taken place between us and God the Father through the Son, but reconciliation has also taken place through that same sacrifice Come for on, us to another. Those Come are the things. And so, so, so the gospel is sufficient in those ways. The, 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 the Bible, biblical sufficiency is on attack. And so we need to understand what we mean when we say biblical sufficiency and gospel sufficiency is under attack. And we need to understand that the gospel is sufficient to, to ensure that, that we are reconciled to God, the father, and that we have been reconciled one to another. That's what I got. Preach bro. Preach that man. Preach that Omaha. Thanks for that, man. Listen, I want to get back to my notes in just a second, but I have to say this, you know, one of my, one of my, uh, one of my historical heroes is a, uh, a, a, a black man by the name of Robert Smalls, uh, Robert Smalls. I won't go into too much detail about him other than to say Robert Smalls was born a slave, but ended up being one of the unsung heroes of the civil war. Uh, and Robert Smalls said this, this is one of his more notable quotes. Robert Small says this, he says, and, and to give you some context of who this man is, Robert Smalls preceded Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin by about 100 years. Okay, so when you talk about uh, the Montgomery bus, bus boycott uh, with Rosa Parks, when you go a few months before Rosa Parks to 15-year-old Claudette Colvin, uh, go back another 100 years and research what Robert Smalls did in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the 1860s, okay? But Robert Small said this. He said, quote, 
My race needs no special defense. Mm -hmm. For the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal of anyone. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Um, come on, man. Come on, man. I'm going to read that one again. This is Robert Smalls. Look him up. My race needs no special defense. For the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal of anyone. All they need is an equal chance yes. in the battle of life. Now, why did I cite that quote here in this episode? Going totally off script here. What Small said about life being a battle. Why is life a battle? He's right. Life is a battle. It's a battle because it's because of sin. Mm -hmm. That's why life is a battle. Life mm -hmm. isn't a life isn't isn't a battle because a white person has this opportunity and a black person doesn't. Life is a battle because of sin. Mm -hmm. Romans eight, Paul says that the entire creation, all of creation, has been subjected to corruption. The corruption of the effects of sin. Go all the way back to Genesis three. 1619 project. What a joke. We need a Genesis 3 project. That's what we need. Smalls was absolutely right. <laughs> he said, all, all our people need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Smalls didn't complain about equal outcomes. I just had to say that, man, because you, 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 the, 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 the critical race theory, bro, when you peel back the layers, yeah. it's, it's, it's evil. Yes, It's evil is what it is. You know, Omaha, in the forward to the book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, authors Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanik quote the late United States Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman as saying this, quote, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way, unquote. That was Justice Harry Blackman, the late Justice Harry Blackman, as quoted in the book, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. Now, conversely, in the book, Seeing a Colorblind Future, The Paradox of Race, Dr. Patricia J. Williams, the James L. Dorr Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School and a vocal proponent, proponent of critical race theory, writes this, quote, the solution to racism lies in our ability to see its ubiquity, but not to concede its inevitability. It lies in the collective and institutional power to make change at least as much as with the individual will to change. It also lies in the absolute moral imperative to break the childish, deadly circularity of centuries of blindness to the shimmering brilliance of our common, ordinary humanity, unquote. So Patricia Williams is arguing in her book, Seeing a Colorblind Future, that humanity intrinsically has the capacity and the ability to, as she says, bring about a solution to racism. All we need to do is rely on our shimmering brilliance, to rely on the shimmering brilliance of our common, ordinary humanity. Well, do you know what Scripture says about your common, ordinary humanity? It's, it's Romans 3.23. For all, that word all, there's your commonality right there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's your common, ordinary humanity right there, Dr. Williams. Your common, ordinary humanity is that we're all sinners. Now, my reason for quoting the aforementioned individual is that notwithstanding its myriad presuppositions, 
Critical race theory and those who propagate that worldview fail to comprehend what is the fundamental root cause of and remedy for all sinful ethnic prejudice or what critical race theories would call racism. What both Blackburn, I'm sorry, what, what both Blackman and Williams get wrong is that ethnic prejudice, along with its subsequent effects, is not a matter of the rule of law in society, but of the rule of sin in the human heart. That's what Come they on. don't get. Come on, man. Come on. Ethnic, sinful ethnic prejudice has nothing to do with the matter of the rule of law in society. It has everything to do with the rule of sin in the human heart. Now, consider, consider that in light of what the 17th century Puritan Ralph Venning says in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin. Venning says this, quote, Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. Sin is contrary to the works of God. It works contrary to God, and it is contrary to God's works, and is called the work of the devil. That's 1 John 3, 8. All God's works were good exceedingly, beautiful even to admiration, but the work of sin, the works of sin are deformed and monstrously ugly, for it's disorder, confusion, and everything that is abominable. Sin may be arraigned for all the mischiefs and villainies that have been done in the world. Did you hear that, listener? Ralph Venningen says sin is the reason. Sin may be arraigned for all the mischiefs and villainies that have been done in the world. It is the master of misrule, the author of sedition, the builder of Babel, the troubler of all mankind. God is good and does good. That's Psalm 119, verse 68. Sin is evil and does evil. Indeed, it does nothing else. So sin and its works are contrary to God and his works, unquote. That was Ralph Vinning from his book, The Sinfulness of Sin. Likewise, the 17th century Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Evil of Evil, said this, quote, Nothing is such an enemy to our good as sin is, unquote. Now, following that line of thought, John MacArthur in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, writes this, quote, Sin does not necessarily express itself in overt acts. Sinful attitudes, sinful dispositions, sinful desires, and a sinful state of heart are just as reprehensible as the actions they produce. Sin is deceitful in a way that hardens the sinner against his against its own enormity. Hebrews 3:13. We naturally want to minimize our sin as if it were not really any big deal. After all, we tell ourselves, God is merciful and loving, is he not? He understands our sin and can't be so hard on us, can he? But to reason that way is to be deceived by sin's cunning. Such is the sinner's penchant for sin that it controls him. He is in bondage to it, but he nevertheless pursues it with an insatiable appetite and with all the passion in his heart, unquote. So with all due respect to Dr. Patricia Williams, though her words may very well wax poetic, they are sorely misguided. There is no such thing as the, quote, shimmering brilliance of humanity. In fact, Scripture clearly declares that the very opposite is true, as I alluded to in Genesis 6-5 
earlier, which says that then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that the that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's also Ecclesiastes 7.20, which I quoted, and then Romans 3.23 as well. Likewise, though, with all due respect to Justice Harry Blackman, there, who, Blackman said again, in order to confront racism, we mustn't confront race. He said there is no other way. But, but with all due respect to him, there is another way to, quote, get beyond racism, unquote. And that way is through the one who is the way. That is Jesus Christ. There is no other way than through the way. Who is Christ? Who of us does not desire to live in a world and society that is just and equitable? Nevertheless, adjectives like just and equitable must be defined objectively so that an objective construct of those terms is derived at so that they can be applied with equity, meaning without partiality or bias, to all of God's image bearers, regardless of outcomes. Mm -hmm. That is what true equality is and looks like. Thoughts on all. No, man, I, I, I love I love what we've done. And again, I, I, I point this out for our listeners to understand where we've been. And again, I, I, my goal is not to summarize the point, summarize our points. We'll do that here in just a second. But for people to understand what you've just done, you've just flipped the page and you've looked at what what the solution is. Right. If, if you're listening to this and going all the way through and you don't understand where we currently are, we've we've unpacked critical race theory. We've unpacked it's 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 evil. We've unpacked its racism. We've unpacked all of those pieces of the puzzle. Now, now we're turning the page to the solution uh, to, to, to the biblical understanding of sin to a biblical understanding of justice, to yes. a biblical understanding of the gospel, and to a biblical understanding of the gospel's impact. That's that's where we are currently in, in, in this part of the discussion. So if you've, if you've lost track of where we are and you've picked up at this point, I want you to know with crystal clarity where we are. And, and I'll just reiterate the point that, that, that I made earlier, which is that the goal of the gospel is to reconcile us to God the Father through the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and that that gospel does not end there, that that gospel also reconciles us one to another. So there's not some book on racial reconciliation that's necessary. The book on racial reconciliation was written long before God the Father said, let there be light in eternity past. And he knew that in the sending of his Son, that his Son would redeem a chosen people for the purpose of salvation and that we would be the ministers of reconciliation to a world in desperate need of the light of gospel truth. Amen, brother. Thank you for that, Omaha. You know, as we prepare to close out this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, Omaha, on the topic of critical race theory, I want to quote again Dr. Thomas Sowell from his book, Discrimination and Disparities, where Sowell writes this, quote, as Edmund Burke said more than two centuries ago, Quote, in history, a great volume is unrolled for our instruction, drawing the materials of future wisdom from past errors and infirmities of mankind, unquote. But he warned, Sowell states, that the past could also be a means of, quote, keeping alive or reviving dissensions and animosities, unquote. Now, let me pause here for a moment and say that what Thomas Sowell is pointing out here in quoting the 18th century Irish philosopher, Edmund Burke, is precisely what critical race theory does. 
Critical race theory keeps alive and revives and gives life to the dissensions and animosities of the past. It yes. does that because the reality is that there is no redemption in critical race theory. There is no redemption in critical race theory. There's no repentance, no salvation, and perhaps worst of all, no forgiveness. Critical race theory thrives on vengeance, anger, resentment, and revenge. Now, as a worldview, and that's precisely what critical race theory is, it is an entire worldview. Critical race theory must endeavor to breathe life into the historical grievances held by various intersections of American society so as to resurrect and re-prosecute those grievances toward the goal of achieving a multicultural nirvana in which society operates within the prejudicial and materialistic precepts of cultural Marxism. That's the goal here. And, and cultural Marxism represents the principles by which critical race theory operates in a society. Sol continues here, quote, it is in this second sense, that is the sense of keeping alive or reviving dissensions and animosities, that history is too often taught today under the banner of, quote, social justice and using the same toxic mixture of heady rhetoric and heedless visions that led to such monumental tragedies in the totalitarian dictatorships of the 20th century. After territorial irredentism has led nations to slaughter each other's people over land that might have little or no value in itself, simply because it once belonged in a different political jurisdiction at a time beyond any living person's memory, what is to be expected from instilling the idea of social irredentism growing out of historic wrongs done to people long dead? Such wrongs abound in times and places around the world, inflicted on and perpetrated by people of virtually every race, creed, and color. But what can any society today hope to gain by having newborn babies in that society enter the world as heirs to prepackaged grievances against other babies born into that same society on the same day? I hope you guys are listening to me here. I'm still quoting Thomas Sowell. The only times over which we have any degree of influence at all are the present and the future, both of which can be made worse by attempts at symbolic restitution among the living for what happened among the dead, who are far beyond our power to help or punish or avenge. Galling as these restrictive facts may be, that does not stop them from being facts beyond our control. Pretending to have powers that we do not, in fact, have risks creating needless evils in the present while claiming to deal with the evils of the past. Mm. Any serious consideration of the world as it is around us today must tell us that maintaining common decency, much less peace and harmony among living contemporaries, is a major challenge both among nations and within nations. To admit that we can do nothing about what happened among the dead is to not give up the struggle for a better world, but to concentrate our efforts where they have at least some hope of making things better for the living, unquote. Now, to help capture soul's thoughts through the lens of Scripture, I want to point our listeners to a couple of passages in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. First is Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Mm -hmm. Zechariah 7, verses 8 through 10. Here's Zechariah 8, verses 16 through 17. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Now, what these two passages in Zechariah tell us is, one, that true justice, as it is stated in chapter 8 and verse 9 of Zechariah, is rooted and grounded in God's word. Okay, that's number one. The definition of true justice is grounded in God's word. And then number two, that as we, the people of God, advocate for true justice within that objective biblical definition, a definition that is without partiality, bias, or prejudice, we are not to sin ourselves in the pursuit of it. Now, when you look closely at critical race theory, you'll see clearly that it violates both of those principles which is precisely why believers in Jesus Christ must reject it. I say that in light of the unfortunate reality, Omaha, that there are professing evangelicals in the church today who, when it comes to critical race theory, are suggesting that Christians can somehow eat the meat and spit out the bones. Right. But, but I ask our listeners to consider that proposition in light of these challenging words from the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink, who in his book Christian Worldview said this, and listen closely, church, this is a challenge. Baving said this, quote, if we understand Christianity's warrant and maintain a desire to preserve her essence, then we can do nothing else but take a resolute position against the systems of the day and the worldviews of its own invention and fashioning. There can be no question of mediation. There can be no thought of reconciliation. He's talking about mediation or reconciliation with these worldly systems that the world has invented and fashioned. Baving says the times are too grave to flirt with the spirit of the age. The deep, sharp contrast standing between the Christian faith and the modern person must provide us with the insights that, listen, picking portions of each is not possible. So Baving said, no, you can't eat the meat and spit out the bones. He says, you can't just pick portions of each. That's not possible. And that deciding between alternatives is a duty. Baving said, you need to come down on one side or the other. You right, can't pick right. portions of each. Baving closes with this. He says, however lovely peace would be, the conflict is upon us, unquote. Now, unlike critical race theory, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message, not a movement. I want to repeat that. I want to make sure you got that. The mm -hmm. gospel of Jesus Christ is a message, not a movement. As I've often said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come into the world to save society. Right. We know this from such texts as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, which reads this, but we do not see him. I'm sorry, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
Christ came to taste death for his elect. He didn't come to save society. He came to taste death. As Daryl Brock, Dr. Daryl L. Brock, I'll close with this. Dr. Daryl L. Brock, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary and Senior Research Professor of New New Testament Studies says this. He says this in his book, Jesus According to the Scriptures, quoting Dr. Daryl L. Brock. Jesus pursues relationships with sinners, not a separation from them. In seeking God's will, he pursues the display of God's mercy, not as a way of denying sin, but in a way that allows it to be profitably treated. That is, in a way that allows sin to be profitably, profitably treated because it is sinners he, that is Jesus, seeks to cure. Unquote. Dr. Daryl Bach is saying that Jesus seeks to cure sinners. Jesus didn't come to save society. He came to save sinners. And once the church realizes that, it can stop being sucked in by worldly evil ideologies like critical race theory. Omaha, you want to close us out with some thoughts and, and a closing prayer, bro? Man, I'm just taking all of this in, man. We've we've covered a lot of ground. Um, <clears throat> by all intrinsic purposes, man, we 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 we're over three hours. Yeah, and, we're coming up on three and a half. Yeah, that's just that's just how we do it, man. And and that's uh, how we do back. it, bro. That's how this is how we roll on on JT. This, this is how we yep. do it. And uh, man, our our heartbeat around this is to provide you with. We, we could we could have chopped this up into three, four different episodes. Our goal was to for you if you've got this episode, you've got you've got the library on on the ground we've covered. Um, I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at your your citation list, man. Twenty seven different um, people that you quoted, and 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 sometimes more than once, twice, three different times. Uh, add, add, add about a handful of them that I added to, uh, that mix as well. And we, we've got, we've got more than 30 different citations, uh, more, more than, more than 20, 22 pages of notes, um, that we've compiled and put together. We put a lot into this for the hope that it benefits the body of Christ. The, the point we made earlier, man, a lot of this stuff is hidden in the world of academia. Uh, all of this stuff, you have to go dig this stuff out. Do you want to add? Did you want to add something, brother? No, you're good, man. Go ahead, continue. I, I just want to say that you know this. This is uh, CRT is 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 this is an academician's uh, theory, and uh, and then they've held it in that space and place on purpose for quite some time. Um, what we've done is we've taken all of the uh, all of the the heavy lifting of the workout. We wanted to unpack it for you in a way that was helpful. Uh, that we hope is edifying, uh, and that we we hope informs you, as as you as a pastor, as a layperson, uh, are are running into this on an on an ongoing basis. Uh, it, as we said at the top, it permeates every aspect of culture, and unfortunately, it has infected uh, church culture. And uh, we need to be aware of it. We need to be mindful of it. We need to know how to address it. We need to know how to do so biblically. And what you heard over the course of the last probably 40, 40 minutes, forty five minutes or so. Was was the biblical response to CRT as we laid the groundwork for what that what that's all about? With that said, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna offer a prayer and then I'll, I'll I'll close this out. Father God, we just lift you up. 
uh, we're grateful that none of this has caught you by surprise or off uh, or, or or off guard. Uh, ever since the foundation of the world, you knew that 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 worldly and sinful ideologies would would cu- would catch men unawares. Uh, again, you sent your son. You sent uh, the the truth of the Word of God. You sent uh, pastors, uh, uh, teachers. Uh, those who can equip us for the work of ministry. We're grateful for those. We're grateful for the local church. Uh, We're grateful for faithful men who shepherd uh, the flock uh, and who teach us what we need to know in an effort to combat these worldly ideologies. Uh, We're grateful for the sacrifice of your son. We're we're thankful for the gospel that saves and that restores uh, our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. We're grateful for that. And uh, our prayer uh, here just thinking is that you would use this platform that you would use uh, our work here in an effort to glorify yourself, that this, uh, the time that we've spent would help people uh, be clear about what's out there, but more importantly, point others to you. And so we, we, we give this uh, as a, as a sacrifice of, of our time, talent, treasure, energy. Uh, we, we, we give it, we give it to you and ask you to do with it what you will by your spirit. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, man, this this was a great episode. Our hope, again, is that you were edified uh, in every way, shape, and form. Uh, again, go back and listen to the very beginning where we've got we've got scholarships uh, that we're offering through the Just Thinking Ministries uh, in, in in conjunction uh, with Masters University. Go check those out. Ten thousand dollars scholarships uh, are available. Be praying uh, for our pastor friend there in Canada. Uh, as we as we continue to navigate and see what culture and, and uh, desires for those of us who preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that said, we can't wait for you to join us next time on the on the next edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. Thinking, thinking, thinking.